captured by an enemy is a shocking experience for any soldier in any war. In Korea, this shock was made sharper because no one knew quite what to expect, except possibly the worst. Starvation and brutality, maybe, or torture even. Oriental torture, such as burning bamboo splinters under the fingernails. Then there'd been talk of brainwashing. Wasn't brainwashing a big thing with the Chinese? Maybe they even used narcotics. Gentlemen, we welcome you to the ranks of the people's democracy. We are happy to have liberated you from the Wall Street warmongers who sent you here for their profit. We have nothing against you, and we want to offer you a fair proposition. All we ask is cooperation and fair play. For you, this war is over, so don't fight us. Sit back, be like others, relax. Make yourselves comfortable like the other men are doing. You have nothing to fear. We want to be your friends. There are no slave camps here, no road gangs. You will not be put to work. We will give you free the best food and shelter and clothing we possibly can. Now, it won't be good by your standards. We are a poor country, but it will be the best thing we've got, and you won't have to work for it. Finally, we will give you the thing we know you really want most, a chance to learn the truth. When the warmongers have made enough money, when they let this senseless slaughter end, we just want you to go home to your own good homes and find families and simply tell them the truth as you yourselves decide the truth to be. Well, you've got to admit, this beats burning bamboo splinters under your fingernails. It was almost as irresistible as the deals you hear over the radio. Get it now. Don't deny yourself a thing. Sit back. No need to work. Get yours. Everybody else is getting theirs. Yes, this was pretty much the way in which our men were greeted by the Chinese and how their captivity began. In other wars, Americans have always organized together fairly soon after capture. They set up internal controls, escape committees, a military justice system, and groups to care for the sick and wounded. But in Korea, even though many months went by, effective internal organizations didn't develop. Yet during this period, there was no special indoctrination, no magical methods for the control of Americans, nothing except the usual hardships and deprivations of prison camps. And from Dr. Mayer's own standpoint, as a physician and psychiatrist, it was this period which disturbed him the most. Because it was during this period when most of the men who died, died. Give up-itis, they called it, when the weakest simply turned their faces to the wall, covered their heads, and within 48 hours, were dead. If only the boy's family and school and church had helped him grasp and develop the idea of personal responsibility and obligation, had weaned him away from the belief that individual effort was painful and useless. If only he had been taught that he has the ability, even alone, to meet and solve serious problems, then this cold, terrible reality would not have destroyed him. But it was after the first few months that we began to see the communist Chinese indoctrination the application by the Chinese of a finely developed educational program, 
one that occupied every day, all day, seven days a week for the great majority of prisoners. It was a classical anti-capitalist, anti-American diatribe of the sort the communists have been publishing for years. Afterward, there were discussions in which every prisoner was forced to participate, but not by the Chinese. Oh, no. Come on, soldier, get with it. Sum up this lecture for our instructor so we can get some chow. Then there were the public confessions, where each prisoner was required to stand up and perform an exercise of public self-criticism, confessing to one and all his past sins against society. Oh, we had several slaves, about 2,000 per acre. Beyond that, we, we owned most of the land. We drove Cadillacs all over, and there was a yacht for everybody, one for me, one for my daddy, and money was nothing to us. Not because they believed what they heard or what they said, nothing of the kind. They simply went along. They did what others expected them to do, even though they knew it was wrong. Why? There were some things I wasn't too proud of, I haven't mentioned before. Like the time I took your food rations when you were sick. Well, the time when I took medicine from you. And I also informed on some guys who were breaking out of compound 14. Well, everyone else was doing it. And to be popular, you went along too. If you didn't, well, a guy could become mighty unpopular. All right, gentlemen, dismissed. You had a free choice, of course. You could enjoy either popularity or respect. Rotten crumb. Not very many chose respect. Only a few. All right. Well, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, I'm here with my co-host, John Ross, and of course, hey, Jay Underworld. Uh, we'll be joined by uh, J.G. Michaels later from Parallax View, um, which is a great podcast. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking about The Manchurian Candidate which, you know, uh, was not the movie we just watched. Um, the movie we just watched was like a, a Reagan-narrated pseudo-documentary that I definitely want to get you guys' thoughts on. But, um, you know, it kind of follows along with the same theme, definitely. I, I love that Ryan Grimm is in, the, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, the soldiers that came in. I guess that's how he got a scar, uh, was at the, uh, at the re-education camp to make him a good leftist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know... You can see like the shadow of like the or like the the I guess um foreshadowing of the like just say no like Nancy Reagan uh, propaganda uh, clips because he's like I don't know it, it's kind of funny that he's just like thinks that uh, peer pressure turns you into a communist <laughs> and like lack of personal responsibility which of course this is when uh, ostensibly Ronald Reagan is still a is still a liberal like a New Deal right. yeah, yeah he was a New like Deal Democrat. Yeah. And then, of course, it's the black person that died and the uh, 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 who didn't have any personal responsibility. So, you know, that's what killed him. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That It gets more and more outlandish, but, like, it's 27 minutes. So, obviously, like, you know, we're not going to watch the whole thing. But um, I, Reagan's a ridiculous person. I just want to say <laughs> that, first of all. Like, <laughs> the fact that he... Now, have you gotten... Her, have you uh, uh, read uh, Invisible Bridge or... Um, uh Reaganland yet yeah both okay yeah okay no i just i haven't so i was just wondering i i've heard of Reaganland, but i've not read read it so it's uh okay. it's a commitment yeah, it's yeah. A well big i mean commitment. Nixon land is fantastic so so like i imagine uh 
you know, each of the books are, are equally as fantastic. I just, uh, I haven't had a chance to, to uh, read them yet. So Invisible Bridge is the only one that I was kind of like, that's the first one I read and it was on Scribd and that was like the only Rick Perlstein book they had. And obviously it was when I just started working, um, like doing producing for GTA and Ben kept bringing up Nixon land. So I ended up um, just being like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try to delve into some of this. And I don't know, Invisible Bridge is really, I mean, it's mostly about um, Watergate, which mm -hmm. I wasn't as interested in, I guess, because um, I already knew a lot about it. But um, I don't know. Everybody it, knew um, the story of Watergate, so it wasn't really uh, worth telling again. Yeah. Well, it went in depth. And the interesting thing that Rick Perlstein always does yeah. is that he kind of he, uh, uses culture and, like, uses, you know, like, what's going on in, like, I guess, like, in, in you know, establishment news and what's going on in, in the culture with movies and TV shows and um, in Invisible Bridge, he starts uh, quoting um, Saturday Night Live a lot, like <laughs> as, a, as like kind of a bellwether for where American public thought is, which is interesting. But um, you know, you kind of knew where it was with uh, with Watergate, but like you know, the combination of like Watergate and like Vietnam syndrome kind of led to was were two of the things that really led to uh, Reagan in the end, because mm -hmm. you know, it's like this this we're we're seeing this like both the government now has lost you know total faith. Um, or like, you know, we've all lost total faith in the government. The government's lost total faith in itself. Mm -hmm. And for like really the first time since like the, the you know, early 20th century consensus was established. And um, yeah, so it's kind of an emotional journey, uh, which is interesting. But I think I was way more interested in Reaganland. And uh, I don't know. He really did a good job explaining how like a weird of a weird of like an elven creature Jimmy Carter was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, the one thing about Nixon land, cause that's the the one that I've read is, is the, even though like, you know, you know how it ends, like, like he creates great tension in the book. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, like he kept like ratching it up as, as you're getting closer and closer to the end of the book. And you're just like, wait, what's going to happen next? I mean, I know what happens next, but what's going to happen next? And, and uh, I, I, I kind of hope that the, uh, the rest of the books have that kind of uh, tension in it as well. Well, uh, he was on know your enemy. Um, talking about about like when Reaganland first came out and he said that like one of his techniques is like he wants to tell you a story like you know it's, it's all historical fact he wants to like tell you a story about you know something and he wants to like almost make it feel like you're not going to know what's going to happen in the end despite the fact that everybody knows what happens in the end which is an interesting like uh storyteller trait for a historian yeah no that's good i, I was always uh, i was talking um on uh ben burgess's stream uh for a patreon uh special we we watched a documentary and i was talking about how documentary is is one part kayfabe you know it's it's telling a story and, and even if you're you're um telling an honest story there are still elements of of dishonesty to to create atmosphere to tell that story um because i actually have a speaking role in a documentary that's coming out uh yes. or at least i did the previous cut um they, they went back into production Film some more stuff. I don't know if I'm if I'm still in it or not. But um, uh, my my buddy uh, called me up and uh, had me do a. Uh, 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 he's like, "Can you do a German accent?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Okay, this is what I need." And, and so um, I, I actually went into a recording studio, went to the booth, and recorded a couple lines for a voicemail, um, and, and uh, with a German accent. And he's, you know, my, my my friend's like, "Oh, this is fantastic!" So so I'm going to be in a movie with like Shepard Fairey and. Um, Sandra Berkeley and and uh, like the most uh, specialist of Pablo Picasso in in the country, so nice. it's, it's very exciting, and I get to be yeah. a German art director or art uh, gallery yeah. owner. 
Well, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, I mean, in a lot of cases, there's like a lot of archive stuff. Like I did those, um, I mean, you know, I did the, the illicit histories. Like I, I did a lot of the editing on those for Michael. And then I kind of did the same thing. We did those two uh, Jacobin documentaries, like our mm -hmm. Jacobin docs or whatever. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's more archive footage out there for things than you think there is and more like photos than you think there is. But at the same time, like if you have the budget for it, like why not just recreate that? And why not like recreate things you don't have assets for? So, but then of course that pushes you further and further into that kayfabe um, right. idea. Because, you know, when, when it's like, like what we just watched is pure kayfabe. Like there's no factual anything in it, uh, despite the fact that it's narrated by an ex-president. Ronald Reagan is real. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, I don't even know if he is at this point. You know, what, what do we, what do we know? <laughs> No, but like no. Yeah, Ray Ronald Reagan was a basketball. Well, he was a he was a B movie actor, of course, at this point. So narration yeah. was his like uh, was his thing, and didn't really have any you know didn't really have any scruples. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I I always thought it was funny. Like he's a failed actor. You know, yeah. I mean, like, I feel like I feel like B um, movie means failed. <laughs> no, but yeah, but like, but <laughs> after the B movie, like he he got pushed out of even B movies at one point. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. he got pushed to television, which at the time was, yeah. He, uh, he was like, uh, I think he yeah. was like president of GE of a Actors Guild. It was, in well, the, first, in the he 50s. Was, first he was he, first he was the the Screen Actors Guild president. Yeah, yeah. And during that, basically, uh, informed to the House on American Activities Committee more yeah. than once, and, and was like happy to do it. And then after he was that, actually he doing hired. it before that that started. Yeah, he he was doing and, it like back during uh, uh, Second World War. And uh, the, uh, actually, no, before the Second World War. And um, uh, there is a painter, and I am completely blanking on uh, his name. I'll have to dig it up later. Um, but because because uh, you're editing this, right? Yeah, we can edit yeah. in the paint uh, the painting. But uh, there's a painter where it's like uh, from Isn't like it nice to be on something you don't have to edit, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but there's this, this painting uh, from like the 1930s and it's like Reagan standing in an alley, like holding up a bunch of corpses of dead babies. Um, <laughs> and the whole thing is about how he, you know, uh, how, how he was like um, uh, terrorizing Hollywood uh, and was just a monster. Um, yeah. So, so like, like, you know, th this goes way further back than you think. I don't know um, if that's actually in the, uh, you know, in, in the uh, Pilsen books, but, um, it's it's fascinating because it's um, so in the, really, in the world scene books. He was um, for socialized medicine at one point. Let's not forget about that. In the in the pearl scene books, it kind of goes through um, the the when he's president of the Screen Actors Guild and uh -huh. he's kind of testifying before the House on American Activities Committee and um, kind of lobbies really hard for that, realizing that like it, you know his future in film is is kind of dried up. Like yeah. he was always because you know it goes from he's always like the the second. He's never the lead. He's always the second lead. And mm -hmm. then he's kind of in a lot of like ridiculous B movies. And then as time goes on, like even even the B movie directors are like, all right, like this is kind of a has been guy. So he realizes that like, you know, the, the only thing he can really do at that point is like become the president of the Screen Actors Guild. And that gives him like an inordinate amount of power. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> to, like negotiate contracts. And then of course, <laughs> you know, slowly over time, he he becomes like, you know, the the far right version of Reagan because first General Electric kind of um he gets he gets really into the idea that General Electric is like a benevolent company and they have him go around and talk to all the union workers about how they shouldn't be like 
you know, they, they like, he, I don't know. He like, he wants to be the corporate friend. He basically became the face of a corporation and he even mm-hmm. lived in the fucking GE house. Yep. Um, there's some, there's some, I gotta, I'll find this, but there's some really fucking weird. Um, Cause you know, uh, his, his, um, the GE like general electric theater or whatever, that whole, um, that whole show uh, is filmed with like Reagan doing the, um, that whole show is like filmed with, with Reagan doing the narration in between. And, He's he's like he comes up and he's like the new General Electric house and they actually like let him move into it with his family, as if he's like, you know, as if he's like in the fucking Truman Show or something, and, uh, <laughs> like like literally. Now, this is an open court off our living room. Eye catching, isn't it? The lighting is pale blue, very cool looking. This, of course, is our living room. You know, Nancy, we'll see Patty later on. Hello. Our lighting in here is rather interesting, too. See? Over the sofa and over each chair are individual lights built right into the ceiling. They do marvelous things for the room. Around the edges of the room, set in the ceiling, are rows of fluorescence. They bathe the walls in light, make the room more alive and cheerful. And bigger, too. Notice? Now, over here in the dining room, the mood's entirely different. See, up there in the ceiling? Around the chandelier, a string of lights, 12 of them, like a necklace of jewels. Some are pink, some gold, some blue-white. When they're all on together, we have a white effect. By turning the knobs of this dimmer, we can change the colors, mix them, and get different effects. You can have a warm yellow tone, or a more flattering pink or cool blue. I wish you could see the colors. We can make the lights softer or bring them up higher. Now I want to show you the most exciting thing. Well, let's save the big surprise to last, shall we? All right. Lighting helps us live better all over the house. Now, if this weren't a company night, uh, we'd probably find Nancy in the bedroom. Reading. And the light's just perfect for it. The correct distance up and behind. And look at this. A switch that controls the lights all over the house, inside. Oh, yeah, you get the... <laughs> it's like an episode of Person to Person. Yeah, but it's so weird to think that like that's their house. <laughs> You're right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like they're touring through like this. this I mean, oh, the bedroom. They have Reagan. They have Reagan as like this empty figurehead, like living on a set, pretty much. I mean, yeah. And like he has, he's so like vapidly empty because he's like, he's like. Uh, this is bathed in a beautiful blue. This, this uh, is like, the, it's this cool. Is, you can have and the light. Like, blue is a cool color. How <laughs> also, also it's black and white. Also, it's black and white. So, like, it's not even like you can see the colors they're showing you. I mean, they make the joke about that, but, like, it's really funny they, that they chose to describe it that much. And the yellow one's here. And this The one yellow one's here. And then you could change the lighting on the... Oh my God! We can make it bisexual lighting. <laughs> <laughs> like a, they said, like a strobe light. Uh, what does strobe light mean today in in, in the twenty ten in the twenty twenties? This is where this is where Nancy and I swing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, she she is quite well known for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Our guests are coming. I have to put my keys in the bowl now. <laughs> Here, here's where we keep the keys of the bowl for myself and the other guest. And these are quaaludes. <laughs> we keep the bunch of the quaaludes until we let them out of the closet. We have a little bit of cabinet of everything. You sell our guest if wanted to be. <laughs>
<laughs> the Friedman right there. Um, Friedman and his wife. We gotta. <laughs> um, yeah. So during that time, he's literally just turning into like this this vapid uh, corporate entity, which you know he kind right. of was. Uh, you know, in in his um, you know, in the days that he was doing the Screen Actors Guild, because he was kind of known as like he he was known as like the actor that wouldn't really play hardball with the studio system. So like he's kind of like oh like maybe a little bit more like money, maybe we should fight for like slightly better contracts. But he knew that he, essentially he was going to do whatever the studio system wanted, which is why yeah. GE I think really was like oh well why don't we just have him like literally turn into like a fucking walking GE commercial. <laughs> and that's why there's that great clip from the Smothers Brothers where where they're like. 15 years in the future, President Reagan. And that was the, you know, the laugh line right there. <laughs> that, that's like so cryptic. That is very, yeah. very cryptic. One of the, one of the funniest parts of Nixon land um, are when they describe uh, Nixon going on Smother, Smothers Brothers and going, suck it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that, that's like one of the most famous uh, uh, episodes of Smothers Smother yeah. Brothers. Yeah. No, like that was laughing. Famous. Famous. That, that was something different. Oh, that was or, no, yeah, Rowan Rowan Martin's laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah no, his brothers uh, a, took. Uh, yeah. Was uh, they took um, uh, that that pro war song and they made it anti war by the set and didn't yeah. tell the country singer and he was like really oh, furious. After, they, they let Pete. No, 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 no. They had oh, a right wing country time? singer. This is something different. Oh, um, they had a right wing country singer come on the show. And it was like a mandate from the, because uh, it was like the number one song, uh, and they hated the song, and, and I do not remember the song, uh, but but they uh, they brought the guy on, they 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 uh, ended up like creating this graveyard set that he couldn't see, and so as he's playing the song, they lift the curtain, reveal the graveyard, which completely changed the meaning of a song. So here's this ironic, you know, not a really ironic, but like false, heartfelt, like you know, soldiers go off to war kind of song. And, and then you know, with the graveyard in the background, made it an anti, you know this big anti-war statement. Uh, they got in a lot of trouble for that, um, but but uh, it was like one of their best moments. They they also uh, let um, Pete Seeger come on for the first time in like a really oh. long time. Like he was banned from TV um, for getting blacklisted. And uh, yeah, he was blacklisted. Yeah, he was like he wasn't like they weren't allowing him on on studio. Like they canceled his appearance at the studio and like. I, I don't know. It's it, there was this whole thing with uh, Pete Seeger. Like CBS wouldn't allow Pete Seeger to come on, and finally, like the first time he came on, it was on. Um, it was it was on Smothers Brothers, and there's like a famous clip where he where he plays. Um, I think Pete Seeger was blacklisted. Pete was part of the, yeah, the FBI. Was, was, yeah, right. FBI was. Uh, he admitted he was a communist. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was. He was. He was. Uh, him and Lee Hayes were uh, blacklisted folk singers. He was like a, um, I want to say like a communist, but he was he was also a radical. Yeah, I uh, I met Pete Seeger because I live, you know, I mean his uh, he ended up like moving. I mean he always kind of lived in the Hudson Valley, but his big thing was the river. He tried to get the Hudson River to yep. get cleaned up, and uh, so he was part of River Watch, and they put on this Clearwater Festival. And he was, I mean, this is like he's he's in his 90s at this point. When when mm -hmm. I was there, I think I was like 13 or 14, and I mean now obviously he's passed away. He lived forever though. Right. And, oh yeah. Uh, and my brother ran up. He looked age ninety nine. Yeah, my, my brother, my brother got like my little brother got a picture taken with him, and like if I knew if I knew that like this this is where I was going to end up as a as a career and as my political leanings, I would have been so much, you know, so much more like gung ho about. 
I went to that festival a couple of times and uh, I saw him there and I never got a chance to uh, actually, you know, get my picture taken with him or anything like that. But um, uh kind of wish I had. But so um, I wanted to get your thoughts on Nigerian <clears throat> candidate. Um, and, you know, I think it's uh, I think the Reagan thing was a perfect lead into this. Um, okay. First of all, you know, it's kind of interesting that um, that documentary that Reagan helped create was like, you know, a complete fabrication. Um mm -hmm. You know the politicians like a bunch of american politicians wanted to make sure that um it wanted to give an excuse for why some americans had defected during the korean war because it was something that they had never really uh seen happen on that public scale so they're like oh why would they defect and it was like well the communists were brainwashing them right. um which you know started this whole like jump started this whole fear of like you know oh communists have figured out how to brainwash people communists have figured out um like before we did and I have uh, I have the Stephen Kinzer clip um, from from when he's talking about uh, his book on MK Ultra. The word brainwash was invented by a CIA propagandist, who uh, and it was used to promote the idea that people who had uh, dissenting or unusual ideas in American society must have been brainwashed. And I can understand why they might have wanted to create this fantasy, but the strange thing was they themselves then fell for their own fantasy. The other episode happened with Korea. So after the uh, Korean War ended, uh, several thousand Americans who had been held prisoner in Korea came home. And uh, it turned out that a number of them had signed statements criticizing aspect of American life uh, in some cases had confessed to war crimes, including dropping germ bombs on North Korea, which we swore that we had never done. So the explanation also came out. How, how could any of our strapping young men write things like that, say things like that? Answer, they were brainwashed. And it's actually an interesting footnote to this. I found one memo, tried to figure out how the brainwashing had happened. It said that while... Uh, the prisoners were being transported from North Korea across China to release points in Europe. Uh, several of them reported that they'd gone through kind of a blank area where they might have been poisoned, and that was in Manchuria. That's where the name of Manchuria became associated with all this. Yeah, so, you know, so coming up with this... Uh, you know, this excuse for why Americans, you know, just some, some American soldiers had, you know, um, you know, on, in, in, in prison camps, but still like had, had, you know, defected because, you know, American soldiers don't defect. Like America's the greatest place on earth and we build our soldiers strong. The excuse of course, uh, becomes this documentary that pseudo documentary that Reagan helps create that kind of explains it to the American public. Like, Oh, right. don't worry. Like they've just been brainwashed. They've been conditioned. And, you know, a few years later, um, after the Korean War, that's when the Manchurian Candidate is written and you know, follows that plot, um, which I, I, I guess I want to ask, first of all, um, I mean, there's definitely elements of satire in it, right? Like there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things in it that seem like they're done either as digs or as, you know, um, like lines, like it's, it's not, it, it doesn't feel like a patriotic movie. It kind of feels like a very dark, cynical movie. Like none of the. Um, oh, we talk, we're talking about uh, midterm. Yeah. Yeah, it's you know like I mean obviously like the, you know we talked about the Hayes Code in the first episode and the Hayes Code is still at play like 
you know, if somebody gets shot or if someone murders somebody else, like they have to die themselves. But like, it's not like, I mean, I don't know. Like the, I mean, I guess the treatment of, uh, you know, the Sino-Soviet leaders in it are is kind of, you know, they're kind of comedic and, and, and Joker-ish almost. But like, you know, I think the, the stepfather was um, an almost perfect like representation of like McCarthy. And, right. you know, uh, yeah, so, so um, you know, Angela Lansbury's well, I mean, character, like, as the mother ends up kind of being the, yeah, being like the, the power broker that actually is working for the Soviets. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Both movies, I think, really uh, kind of, um, uh, both Carl Axview and Manchurian Candidate are, are part of, like, this uh, zeitgeist, and I hope I'm not breaking up right now. Um, like, like, in the, uh, in the, um, uh, you know, especially in the seventies, but uh, I don't quite know where this kind of came. It seems uh, prescient that it, it happened in the uh, uh, the seventies. Uh, I mean, the sixties. Uh, you know, when, when Manchurian Candidate came out. Like this is. Mm -hmm. I think it's even before uh, Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah, it was yeah, like a year um, before Kennedy. So, so, so there's a certain sure. prescience. There's a there's a story that yeah. I guess. Um, so, so there's Frank, kind of like Frank Sinatra bought the rights to the movie. And, yeah, and yeah. took it out of circulation, um, and claimed it was because of Kennedy, but it was like so far after the Kennedy assassination, you know, it, it everybody kind of has, like, the evidence would suggest that's not true. That's not why. Right. Well, he broke with Kennedy, I yeah. think, around that time. He was he was good friends, Frank Sinatra, uh, yeah. with uh, JFK, and then he broke with uh, Kennedy with Kennedy because of uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, who was. Uh, the AG at the time, uh, basically told the president, hey, you know, your friend, Frank Sinatra, he's got ties to organized crime, and he was supposed to stay at, uh, excuse me, um, <laughs> at um, Sinatra's residence in New Jersey. I think it was New Jersey. I'm not sure. But he was like, Bobby Kennedy's like, well, you can't, you can't stay there because of his ties to organized crime. So stay with Bing Crosby instead. And uh, Crosby, <laughs> Bing Crosby, of course. What's that? that? No, I said you can't do that. Uh, you want to be friends with? You want to be friends with Frank Sinatra? <laughs> well, no, Kennedy stayed with Bing Crosby. Yeah, uh, no, what I'm saying, like, as like a betrayal of their, or you know, mm -hmm. seen as, as Sinatra. Yeah, and and that's kind of his move later on in this in the seventies towards um towards the from being a Democrat to a Republican. Um, mm -hmm. He rejected the liberalism of, of um, George McGovern and became you know a Nixon supporter, and in in the eighties uh, became very much a supporter of Reagan. Yeah, well, I mean, so, so much of his politics were personal relationships. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like. He was a longtime friend of Kennedy, obviously, <clears throat> a longtime friend of Reagan. So, you know, it's interesting that I think uh, Sinatra's politics were were based on who he has the best personal relationship with. Like, you know, as an enthusiastic, because at one point he was kind of an enthusiastic, like liberal figure. Mm -hmm. And but it, it doesn't seem like it just seems like he kind of molded his politics to whoever he thought would like, you know, would would invite him to be cozy at the at the White House. Right. Well, I mean, there's a there's a lot of people like that. And, and, I mean, like, I mean, you are right. Be honest. But, by the way, <laughs> Forrest, you are right. You can't do that today. You know, you couldn't be friends with, with people who are of opposite uh, political beliefs. You have to have the same belief or something similar. Um, yeah. That's just how it is. I mean, it's interesting to, you know, almost as a comparison to Reagan, like it feels like with Reagan, 
he ends up going into this kind of inner circle of like weird like this is touched a lot in rick perlstein's book um mm -hmm. on regulan like he, he gets into this weird circle of uh this circle of like libertarian economists like milton friedman and his wife and like you know um they, they all end up being kind of these informal um informal advisors to him but also like friends like it, it's almost like a um like a, like one of those like bohemian circles but instead of being a bohemian circle it's like a, a weird fucking libertarian like right successful right. <laughs> <laughs> well that's the other thing about um what i mentioned earlier uh about reagan's politics yeah, he was a very, I mean, in the, in the, in the forties and fifties, yeah, he was a very much a Hollywood Democrat, mm -hmm. uh, supporter of FDR and, and the new deal. And yeah. Like to the point of like making radio broadcasts about how great the new deal was and right. like, like pretty, pretty, I guess, vociferously defending it. And I don't think that that's necessarily like that, that's not out of a, a personal, uh, loyalty the way that, you know, his later mm -hmm. politics are, I don't think, I think right. he genuinely was, uh, you know, a vapid New Deal liberal, but you know, I mean, a New Deal liberal nonetheless. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, you know, he he also uh, it's such a weird thing that he later had convinced himself that he had served in World War Two, despite basically just being on a Hollywood set. And as like yeah. his brain started to go, like he he described the plot of the war movie that he had made on a Hollywood set as if it was like and portray and portrayed that as being in World War Two. Yeah. 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 Like my time in the war, and everyone right. has to be like, you, you, you weren't, you were yeah, not, you were not, you were not in the world war yeah. two. You were on a movie set portraying the world, the war. So yeah, so I, I'm going to continue the the Stephen Kinzer um, thing. It goes on for a couple more minutes. And he talks um, about the the Manchurian Candidate as a movie. Um, regarding the Manchurian Candidate, uh, it's really a uh, a very interesting story. I, first of all, I think the uh, description that you gave is, is amazingly accurate. It's true. The only ones who really believed this stuff was possible were the people inside. They consulted other people, like, for example, the, the, at the Menninger Clinic. They conducted the, consulted the Menninger brothers, leading psychologists who ran this famous psychoanalytic institute, and they both told them, this is nonsense. You're barking up a crazy tree. This is never going to result in anything. But since that wasn't the right answer, that was just filed away. And there were other people writing in places like Argosy and True Magazine, who told them, yes, it was true. So they, they love that stuff. One of these guys they actually hired as a consultant. Um, so I just want to mention a little bit about the Manchurian candidate, though, specifically. Um, I found a very interesting memo uh, that uh, remarked about this. And I believe that uh, the author of this actually commented on it during a, a Senate hearing. So the book of the Manchurian candidate was the first time that masses of Americans were exposed to the idea of brainwashing. But it came out just at the time when inside the CIA, chemists were reaching the conclusion that mind control is a myth and there can never be any such thing as a Manchurian candidate. So this guy, uh, this chemist actually says that that movie caused us, uh, that book and movie caused us a lot of problems because just as we discovered that something couldn't happen, the whole world began to believe that it could. So in 1952, during the Korean War, the Soviets capture an American platoon and take them to Manchuria in communist China. Um, after the war, the, the soldiers return to the United States and Staff Sergeant Raymond Shaw is credited with saving their lives in combat. And that's, I guess that's a really funny place to start because I think part of like the, the cynicism of it is that clearly like the joke is that, you know, um, Raymond Shaw is like incredibly unlikable. 
like there's there's nothing likable about his character at all he has like mother issues he's kind of just like this this like i don't know like like angry angry like uh just you know stick up his ass like like <laughs> like puppet for his for yeah. his family for all like for his whole life and uh you know he's like wound tighter than anything and you know even his wife says i know he's like wound up tight in knots but he seems different when he's with me so you know the fact that um the fact that the china like the the, the chinese and and russian uh like scientists are able to brainwash them and then he becomes the one that you know they're all like they're, they're all sitting there and like he's the best man i've ever met he saved the whole platoon he's incredible like <laughs> yeah of course the, the movie starts off really hard to get into because of how clunky it is mm -hmm. um because like like um uh frankenheimer's like fighting because because it's directed by john frankenheimer mm -hmm. who is a fantastic director um yeah well-known director uh and uh but like like he's fighting with the show don't tell kind of thing because like you don't want to ruin the surprise of like what actually happened mm -hmm. um but but what you do want to uh but but what they did try to do was to uh show how unlikable the character is i i don't think that was successful and then there was like a bunch of narration to explain like what's you know what the story is mm -hmm. and, and so it's kind of like yeah really, the narration's hard to get into it, it almost yeah i mean like where they started it, you know uh like I understand why they did what they did, but it was just really tough because, like, you know, uh, it, 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 they, 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 it was, it was, you know, it's 1960, whatever, uh, 62, 62. Um, yeah. so, so, like, you know, as film, they haven't quite developed the modern language of, of trying to tell this kind of story that way. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if uh, when they started using like showing media to to express like uh, what's actually going on, but th that would have been actually kind of nice having like a a news reporter like explaining it instead of a narrator yeah because the, the narrator documentary, it's documentary-esque but then at the same time they're they're they don't want to like they don't want to commit to that so it's kind of like this weird like half newsreel half documentary half like narrator reading you a book and yeah like, and then then it stopped like right after that so yeah so. It, it's like they they don't want to be like exploitive of anything yet <laughs> you know uh and i, I just that, thought that's that, all i think they don't I mean, want to exploit a lot of things and you know, the movie business. They, it's interesting that they chose to end it when um, they they end it when the they you know the Russians drive away with them or you know fly like they fly away with them like you know what I mean like they end it so you don't really see what happens yet so you're just kind of like all right so they got captured and then it like flips right to uh, Raymond Shaw standing like and getting the the Medal of Honor, um, and you know his his insane like his insane power hungry mother and and uh, and and stepfather he hates like you know turning into this whole um public display because he's running for office and everybody's staring at him and he hates being stared at he's like this I, he did a good job making it awkward i think but he was definitely an awkward character but i maybe not unlikable i guess it, it is i mean it's it is very interesting that he um the stepfather seems to be a direct representation of like mccarthy like mm -hmm. it, it seems like like it's not that hard to you know like watch the McCarthy hearings or something and see like this alcoholic like lout like empty shell of a character just barking like communist 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 um the mother the mother and the father and this thing I wanted to get your guys's uh take on this I guess when they're in the they're in the weird campaign plane and uh and there's like this bar that they've created with these like weird strobe lights and they're just kind of distracting this like empty cute character lights. like yeah he's like he's like Look what they did! It's so fun. <laughs> they're taking the pain out of campaigning. 
which I, I thought was a really funny line. But it's just like applying him with alcohol. The same, I mean, he is, he's brainwashed too, kind of. Like his mind has been cleared out by the liquor. And, um, and I mean, Angela Lansbury's just killing it as like, yeah. you know, I have complaints about like uh, every other performer in the movie, except for like the main guy, because he's supposed to be awkward and you know, like, mm -hmm. like he does his role correctly, but he's very unlikable. Angela Except Lansbury. It's like, like more of a British accent than like a transatlantic accent. Yeah, like, but Angela more... Lansbury makes this movie right yeah. now. Like, this is her film. And every scene she's in, she's just like, yeah, it's, you know, what are you going to do? I'm in the scene. Pay attention to me. Yeah. So um, so we, we watched this uh, Frank Sinatra having this nightmare that's recurring where he's – um. They're, they're all listening to this lady at a, at a, like who's doing a hydrangea convention and then slowly it fades away and they've been brainwashed by the um by like the one of the chinese scientists who's standing mm -hmm. above showing that you know these are brainwashed men and he's made them believe that they're smoking cigarettes and just like in a new jersey hotel like waiting for you know this this uh convention to get over and so they're just kind of bored sitting there and you know one of the weirdest things and it was in the book too was uh the cigarettes were yak dung or something. They're making them. He's there's some line. And he's like, "Yeah, smoking yak dung." Like, <laughs> like uh, they're like, so they're humiliating them. And the plan is that they're going to turn Raymond Shaw, who's the most unlikable out of everybody, uh, into like an assassin. So mm -hmm. the, you know, he shows that like first he he murders the you know the youngest guy that he says you know who's your who's your uh, least your least hated person in the platoon because this whole platoon hates him. Um, and he hates them and it's like the, you know, they detest each other. So he, first he, uh, he strangles in like a very, I mean, it's kind of crazy that they allowed this at this point, but he, he strangles like the, the one, the one guy. And, um, and then after that, he, uh, you know, they, they make him take out his, his pistol and, and, or like they make him take out a gun and shoot, uh, the youngest person in the, in the, that's like too young to even be in service. Um, they make him shoot him in the forehead and it's pretty, it's pretty fucking graphic. And the, the blood hits the Stalin uh, portrait. Um, so I also love the fact that like the, um, uh, the, the two lead Asian actors in the film are not actually Asian. Um, yeah. Cause the, the translator is uh, I think half um, half South American. I forget exactly where his family's from and half Italian. <laughs> and, and then the, uh, the, the guy, um, He's from New Jersey, the uh, the 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 bald guy, um, and he's like uh, he's from Sudan. His family's from Sudan. He was yeah. born in New Jersey. They did that. They did that a lot in uh in older movies. Like a lot of times they have like a Greek or an Italian guy playing like a, <laughs> an, an an Arabic uh, character or like number five a boom. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Well, that guy was Greek. Yeah. In that, but like, yeah, no, they're they're just. <laughs> yeah. Well, all so, Greeks do that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> The, but the 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 guy that wrote uh kiss me deadly was greek like he was a greek american so it's interesting that he's kind of piling on his own his own ethnicity like he was he was from greece so it's i don't know it's kind of funny that like you know he's the one that does it it, it be your own people i guess is what i'm saying <laughs> um so yeah so so frank sinatra wakes up screaming in bed and he's really sweaty and he, he sits in front of military brass and he's explaining this dream and they're like oh so like do you so do you dislike your uh do you dislike raymond and he's like no uh raymond is raymond shaw is the kindest bravest warmest most wonderful human being i've ever known in my life and you heard another one of them say that when he got his medal of honor 
um, and is said in like this flat, like almost robotic, like he's the kindest, bravest, uh, the kindest, bravest, um, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. And like throughout the movie, they just keep saying this. Yeah. And they, they also, this is also throughout the movie. There's a lot of like uh, Frank Sinatra upper lip, um, you know, like sweat. Like he's just constantly yeah. sweating right here. And they're just constantly close up on it. <laughs> so they, like, let's, let's let's get a close up of the of the upper lip sweat. <laughs> yes, it's just New York, constantly... New York. It's, like, it's like it's like Frankenheimer going, "Come on, get another close up. Come on, Frankie, sweat, just sweat. Make make your upper lip sweat. <laughs> Splash water. Are you <laughs> right? Yeah. Or you can't sing in this movie. Does Frank sing in this movie? No, he doesn't. No. Oh, I kept expecting when he was on the train, though. There, you know, New York, New oh, York. York. <laughs> Where are you headed? Um, <laughs> so, so he gets pushed out of the the top brass in the army and and put on this like uh, public relations duty, mm -hmm. where that's that's the moment that you know Raymond's stepfather decides to get up and go there. And this this is my favorite bit in the whole movie, where he goes, "There's 182 communists in the Defense Department," which is the McCarthyite thing. But then mm -hmm. throughout the conversation, the number keeps changing because uh, Angela Lansbury won't give him a set number. So it goes from like 168 to like 212 to like 58 when he finally demands a number from her, which is like such a drop off at that point. Or was um, it 50? Right. No, it was 57. Because of the uh, yeah. Heinz 57 sauce. <laughs> How old is Lansbury at this point? She's, she's like in her 40s, I think. Uh, she was born in the 20s, like late 20s. So she's like pushing 40. She's the right. same age as the as her son like there's she's a alive year. she's alive to this day like yeah she's like yeah. um she's like in her 90s yes yeah no but she she's um uh she's like three years older than the actor who played her son mm -hmm. so you know which is very impressive yeah um and you can tell at some points the amount of makeup they put on her when it gets uh close enough to her face her yes face kind of a lot so of much makeup yeah so much <laughs> which she's used to i'm guessing because you know her uh her theater career is so much more prolific than her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Her, yeah definitely. But I mean, she really is fantastic. Like, like, yeah, I, you she know, is she's an amazing, yeah. amazing actress. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, like, like I love the. I the, the reason why I like the movie was because of Angela Lansbury. It's like you know, um, honestly, this might be my favorite thing. You know, uh, better than like those really, really campy episodes of Murder She Wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's harder to be a stage actor or a stage actress than it is to be a, a film actor. Yeah, movie um, TV. In the sense of like, well, in the sense of like, you don't have the ability, like, you can't stop the show in the middle of it and go line. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't, like, you, you have right. to do lines. You have to show up. It's not like there's, it's not like there's takes. It's not like there's anything like that. It's not like you know they can kind of, which I think they do a lot of times in in movies, like with people like Brando who kind of are in decline. Like they'll stop and start and kind of like. <laughs> redub the guy's dialogue or like make it look like he's like kind of try to find shots that go together or like you know you don't have that opportunity no yeah, well i mean they're doing that with elvis too like at the end of his life uh yeah, yeah. They, they would take they would like record a song as many takes as it takes and then cut the all the different takes into one song and, and like that's like his last couple albums were, were all yeah. made like that so um you kind you of, know, kind of really well, his health problems obviously got in the way yeah but yeah I mean, that's this thing with like uh you know but like angela lansbury like like you know, up until she retired in the nineties, um, she, she, you know, when she was on screen, she was commanding it and, uh, uh, you know, not a big murder. She wrote fan, but, but like, you know, I can, 
game respects game right there. Like, like she, she's yeah. a star. I mean, you know. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, so I'm not a big fan of her. Well, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about murder. She wrote, so uh, <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan either, but I can respect it. No, like, like you give me a campy episode. I will watch the hell out of that. Film, but, uh, <laughs> well, it's like streaming every day on Peacock. So it's like, uh, or any of my, any streaming place. So it's like, it's always on. So you can't really help it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like law and order. Yeah, absolutely. We got to try to get through this before you got to run off. To the... <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, so, he's pushed out of the top brass and he's uh he's kind of now this pr this pr army guy and he can't stop the the defense secretary from screaming back at the mccarthy stepfather character and so mm -hmm. he's kind of he's not he he even says like hey maybe you shouldn't be screaming at a senator right now and the guy just does it anyway like he, he's ineffectual at that job um so i mean because you know politics is a dirty game and he's not <laughs> he's not made for that <laughs> um so in this in this you know in this moment we kind of realized that um another of the uh army uh people in the platoon also is having the exact same reoccurring dream and you see a little bit more of it and he wakes up and you know the fact that the fact that they're both having this dream now um you know the army has to start kind of taking it seriously and and trying to examine like whether or not um like like you know what happened uh during this during this valiant rescue uh, quote unquote, where like you know, two two platoon members were killed. So uh, Iceland, who's the 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 stepfather, um, you know, it, it continues this whole crusade against the Defense Department, saying there's communists, there's communists. The numbers keep switching, but you know, it, it's insanely popular because they're in the middle of the Cold War, and uh, and, and there's just chaos uh, coming from this, and um, you know. Of course, uh, of course, the 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 you know as we learn throughout the movie, like the, the he is well, Angela Lansbury and him are the real uh, Soviet agents that mm -hmm. you know are, are working um, with them, and and Raymond, you know, as their son, which I I really don't believe when she says it's incidental on her end, like oh I didn't know that it was going to be you, like it seems like she's been grooming him for this her entire life would make more now, sense. Now, do you think he, uh, you know, the the senator knew? Um... That 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 he was working for Russia, or or was he just a useful idiot? because <laughs> she was always just like, you you shouldn't think, darling. You know, yeah. that's, and just that's like, let me do the thinking. Like like she's what people think Nancy Reagan was. Yeah, well, well, you know, I mean, pro arguably, probably what at least in the last couple of years, what Nancy Reagan was <laughs> the power behind <laughs> the throne, or Clinton. Arguably, but, I think yeah. That, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think really. I don't think it really matters. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the title, the Manchurian candidate can obviously go for, you know, um, Raymond as, as like the candidate they chose to be an assassin, but it can also go for the stepfather. Like, yeah, he's a useful idiot. I don't know how much he knows, but you know, he, he's in on the assassination plot. He's, you know what I mean? Like he's sitting there sweating, sweating all over the place. Um, there's <laughs> upper lip. Yeah. So, yeah. so he has to know, he has to, he has to know something. He has to know that he's going to be put in place of the, you know, um, it, that's way later in the movie, but still. Um, so yeah, so uh, we kind of see how this whole thing works with with Raymond. Um, he kind of gets taken in to be like service, pretty much. And uh, you know, he's gotten this uh, job as a newspaper man with a the character that weirdly resembles like William Randolph Hearst almost, but like a more a more reform minded, um, like like pre like pre obviously like Citizen Kane um, like era 
William mm-hmm. Randolph Hearst, like, you know, or, or someone like that, like a, like a crusading uh, progressive journalist, I guess, populist yeah. journalist. It was like the most famous political gadfly in the country. And he's like the, the assistant to him. And, you know, they stage his car accident so he can end up in the hospital. And when he gets there, it's like the, you know, they're, they're servicing his, uh, his, his brainwashing. And I think that's one of the funniest scenes in the movie because there's that, you know, there's a couple really great lines of dialogue. Um, like when the, you know, when, when the scientist is like, you know, telling the guy to laugh or whatever, and you can tell they really hate each other. And he's saying, uh, at one point he goes, he goes, my wife gave me a huge shopping list at Macy's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was the best. I mean, like, yeah. like I just wish he could have done it in his native New Jersey accent. <laughs> I, you, you're talking about uh, Sinatra? No, no, uh, no. The the, 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 guy played, the uh, Chinese. Uh, oh, Yen, a ball Yen, doctor. Yeah, Yen. Uh, I think his name is Yen Lin or something. Um, yeah, the the two Asian characters have very similar names, and I. Yeah. One had hair and one didn't, so you know, just be <laughs> you, like Baldy and hairy guy. You said well, New one, Jersey, Indian, so I was thinking, yes, Sinatra. Yeah, one was born in Jersey, and the uh, the the guy who played the translator, he was born in Brooklyn. Huh. The one guy, um, the one guy that becomes the, the translator, uh, is kind of reminiscent of like Cato from, uh, from, um, like the that role. In, like, yeah, I know that the kung fu fight with Frank Sinatra was just yeah. like, ridiculous because they both are bad. Yeah. Um. um <laughs> so so uh yeah so so he's he needs to like they show you how the how the conditioning works. Uh, the the first phrase that opens up the first door is like, uh, "How about you play a nice game of solitaire?" Uh, and so he starts to play solitaire, and as he does it, he pulls out the Queen of Hearts and the Queen or the Queen of Diamonds, and the Queen of Diamonds, the Red Queen of Diamonds, is, is kind of the, the signal to open up the next pathway in his brain. Um, which then from there they're able to, uh, which you know, there's a joke early in it where they say that you know, which I guess is, is where we should have known that the mother was. Uh, Whatever it says, the the Queen of Diamonds is reminiscent of his horrible mother or something, and you know you think that's because she's a famous American figure or something like that, but it's not, you know. Um, <laughs> at least that's what I thought when I first started watching it. So he he gets uh, he he assassinates his boss just as like a test to see if his like conditioning is still working, and he it's kind of a terrifying scene. He walks in with his like you know still looking like he came out of the hospital and and just you know shoots the guy and it fades to black. We we, we find out that you know. 100% the the things that happened that they claimed happened that gave him his medal of honor were all set up by the Soviets and mm-hmm. uh and he's literally just going to be a political assassin for them and there's some american operative and they don't make it clear who it is but they you know someone in america is going to give him instructions for like a final plot um and he you know and obviously the thing is that he's unaware that any of this has taken place um it, once he you know once once he snaps out of the hypnotism and what's great is that the translator is the perfect MacGuffin for this. Yeah. Because, like, like you know, he was kind of like, he doesn't actually end up serving a purpose other than to distract us from his mother, since we've yeah. already revealed that, you know, she's his handler. And, I mean, he's there to assist the mother, too, because, you know, like, he, he can get into the house of the, um, yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, so he tells the story to Sinatra, who Sinatra's kind of come to, um, to watch him to see like because you know sinatra at one point they they show that the, the generals from the soviet army and the generals from the chinese army and they're showing like 
and, and Sinatra and uh, and the other guy point out the exact same generals. Like those are the ones that we saw in that room, which you know the army at that point is like, okay, this is definitely a, a brainwashing plot. So yeah. you know Sinatra is seen as the guy that can kind of get in there and spend time with with Ray because you know no one else likes him and no one else wants to spend time with him. So he ends up coming to the city and hanging out with him. And you know before before Sinatra is finally. Um, you know, granted this validity, he like meets a girl on a train and there's a whole long sequence where it's just sad Sinatra, like waiting to find out whether or not the army is going to have his back, um, quote unquote, going on a vacation. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he finally gets back to Washington just in time to, to point out those two, uh, it's his triumphal moment, I guess, because he's proven that they have been brainwashed. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess that's kind of out of order, but, uh, so Raymond starts telling him about the story where for the first time in his life, he was happy and he met this girl named Josie and he had gotten a snake bite and, uh, you know, the, the snake, the snake bites him and, and she, she's like ecstatic because the, her, her father is really interested in snakes and wanted to see someone get a snake bite and was interested to see what was going to happen with that. And then finally she brings him to the house and they take care of him and, and you find out that her father's a Senator. Um, that that's a, a incredibly liberal, a very a, on the liberal side of the Republican party. <laughs> um, and which existed back then yeah yeah very he's much the, and he's the he's the arch nemesis of uh literally the arch nemesis of, of of raymond's stepfather to the point where he even had sued the mother for um for defamation for calling him a communist which is there is there you know that's their uh i mean it's funny you know we slowly we're slowly finding out that she's a communist or she's mm -hmm. working with the communists but you know, uh, every every time someone says anything, you know, they're, they're like literally like the McCarthy family. Like every time anyone disagrees with them, communist, 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 like that's their political tactic or that's their, you know, their, their fear mongering. Tactic. That's that's the one thing they point to. Yeah. Just like Republicans now. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Iceland, the Iceland <laughs> side of the Republican Party won out. It was, it was very like it's, it's like proto QAnon. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of making fun of the, the John Burke Society. I, I didn't actually realize that the uh, John Burke Society's high point was that close to the McCarthy hearings. Hmm. Um, I thought yeah. that at that point they were kind of falling, like the, because that really is QAnon. Like that's like a, a early 20th century or mid 20th century version of QAnon. Like they still have a website. Yeah. Um, I don't know. They're, they're, I guess the, the high point of their political power was when they had both uh, Reagan and John Wayne. Um, kind of as, as, as on again, off again, members of the John Burr society. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you're definitely right about the, okay. because they, they, they were established in 58. Uh, but like in 54, um, uh, Walsh uh, wrote a book about John Birch, the life of John Birch. Mm -hmm. So, so this was like, um, kind of a, a fictional character that, that, uh, uh, that, that, that they kind of rally around almost like how, um, uh, John Galt is for, 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 uh, Randians yeah um so so yeah so uh she and her so this this woman that he's in love with her and her father are like the closest thing to like friendly people that raymond's ever had and he's completely in love with her but then in the end the mother wins out which you know is kind of it's definitely foreshadowing the level of brainwash uh brainwash like, vapidity i guess that he has because the mother always seems to win out um at, at the end of <laughs> At the end of everything, before he's even brainwashed, Angela and Grace <laughs> decides to um, rekindle rekindle their romance in, in an attempt to get the the stepfather put in as the vice presidential ticket in the Republican Party, because um, you know 
he's vying for it and this you know her father is vying for it and they thought if they could make the political marriage work then he'd probably get it so they set up this whole elaborate party where you know uh she ends up dressed as the queen of diamonds the the, the new uh fiance and she's dressed up as the queen of diamonds and um Raymond gets hypnotized somehow by her like because he's not seeing the trigger the trigger uh mechanism uh senator jordan makes it clear to mrs iceland that he will uh move for her husband's impeachment if he makes any attempt to seek the vice presidential nomination the the marriage kind of or their version of the marriage um uh starts to starts to fall apart um which you know they end up deciding to elope you know and frank sinatra has realized what's happened by now and is coming to try to get to try to talk to raymond about turning himself in and raymond's kind of over the moon and static and it doesn't want to listen to him he gives them two days to uh to you know finally come and turn himself in and, and Raymond's not listening to him but she promises that in two days uh she'll have Raymond contact him and so Frank Sinatra leaves and is really conflicted about leaving but knows he's not going to get anywhere with him right now he's not even listening to anything he's saying and they're both drunk and um <laughs> so like so uh you know Raymond goes to you know rub it in his face to the to his mother that he's got you know he's eloped and um the mother at this point sends off his conditioning and uh and and sends him to go kill his new his new uh his new father-in-law so he arrives there and he's still hypnotized and he slowly points the gun and the guys you know it takes the guy a really long time to realize that that's what's happening because why would you why do you have a gun why is there a silencer on the gun (laughs) wait a uh, second you're here to kill me yeah so he well you know to to be honest though like like uh Mm -hmm. uh years ago i met harrison ford and my first Ooh. thought whenever I met Harrison Ford was, wow, this tall guy looks like Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. And then I start speaking to him and he answers me back. And I think to myself, hey, this tall guy sounds like Harrison Ford. I wonder <laughs> if he knows. And then at that point, I realized, you know, it was Harrison <laughs> Ford. But, you, you know, it's like, like, like there's this, this uh, it, it's completely believable. Like, like if you've ever been in a situation like that, um, yeah. where you meet Harrison Ford or have a gun pulled on you. Yeah. And by someone who you think is the close, I mean, is now family, like, you know, it's not in a situation that would make any sense. <laughs> but so the so the new uh, the new wife comes in and sees him shooting the father a bunch of times. And his his orders are anyone who sees him assassinate someone, he has to assassinate them too. So he assassinates his new bride that he's in love with and he assassinates uh, the, the father-in-law and he takes off. And, you know, Snatcher's looking for him everywhere because at this point he's realized that he fucked up and he takes it extremely personally and, and is just, you know, Raymond doesn't realize that he's done anything um, because he's still hypnotized. So there's like this weird, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra feels like he's he's the one that's messed up and he has to take it all himself because he's the only one that's really knowing what's happening. And, you know, he, he just didn't think that it was going to be that soon that any kind of orders would come out because the, the mother basically jumped the gun on, on any political moment. She just wanted, you know, the rival out of the way because she's not, she's not only just, you know, aligned with the Soviets, she's extremely power hungry in her own right. And has no real she has no allegiance to them any more than any you know she's allegiance to anybody else um so uh yeah so in the course of marco's investigation he discovers the role of the queen of diamonds uh when when raymond plays solitaire in front of him and he realizes that that must be the mechanism because reagan uh, raymond walks out of the bar and uh <laughs> walks down to the street and jumps into a lake yeah doesn't understand why he's done why he did it so um so 
he he finally finds uh finds Raymond and he wants to cancel out his brainwashing and he thinks the best way to do it is is just to set it off <laughs> and say to him which this is the most irresponsible thing he does in the entire movie I think because he should have he should have just done a simple command and not just like a whole speech so for some reason Sinatra decides that two queen of diamonds might have more of an effect than one queen of diamonds um and for some reason he decides that's probably twice the hypnotism so he, he he starts yelling at him and he explains you know that he's been brainwashed and he says you're done it's over like you're no longer brainwashed like uh but then he goes into this whole like tirade where he's like uh he's like you hear it you don't play solitaire anymore if someone asks you say it's over kid i'm out of the baseball field which these are all different <laughs> orders but i feel like in a in a more literal movie he would have just taken off and started walking to a baseball field right <laughs> but you know it, it seems to kind of work it snaps him out of it but then just at that moment the phone rings and he like walks hypnotized over to the phone and answers it and it's the mother uh finally ready to give him orders um which the orders are of course that you know the the father is to be given the vice presidential nomination and just as the the president is making a speech um or the new the new president elect or nominee is making a speech uh raymond raymond is to enter the the little um the little booth at the top the projector's booth and He's to have a, a sniper and you know they don't really play it up throughout the movie but like he's supposed to be like unmissable with a sniper rifle they kind of say it at a couple points but like they don't really stress that but uh he's supposed to shoot the guy and the father is going to stand up and um and and put the like the guy's dying in his arms and he's going to give this speech that the mother uh who sounds batshit insane at this point <laughs> just rally the entire country to their feet and they're going to be like oh it doesn't really matter that he's dead and she thinks that you know Suddenly, they're gonna have so much power. It's gonna make martial law look like, uh, look look like. Uh, I don't I don't remember how she exactly was it. She's like the JFK Jr. is gonna join the tickets and, and yeah. it's gonna be great. <laughs> so um, so there's this long scene where the army decides they're not gonna intervene, and you know, uh, really on 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 behalf of uh, of Raymond, they're just kind of like gonna let this play out after all that, and he he stumbles up like you know like uh hypnotized up to the up to this projection booth and you're wondering kind of like is is he still hypnotized and or is he doing this like has he just decided to do it at this point like you know what i mean like it's not really explained and it's not just kind of chasing after him uh despite the fact that nobody in the army will help him out <laughs> for whatever reason um so he gets up there with the sniper rifle and he's like waiting for the guy to give the speech and and to do the signal and and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and Finally, the national um, anthem plays. Yeah, and Frank Sinatra has to yeah, stop like, and salute the entire time. <laughs> That's another three minutes to lose. And, uh, <laughs> like how very Republican of him. Yeah, guy, definitely. So, this is really. I mean, I think this is really well shot. The end of the movie, because um, he has the 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 you know the the sniper. Uh, he has a sight trained on the on the on the presidential candidate for the full three minutes, as if he's going to shoot him. And just as the guy says the line, he tilts the gun like this and shoots his stepfather um, and his stepmother and, and kills them both. And uh, Sinatra finally runs in and, and sees what he's done. And, and he's like, nobody else is going to do it. No one else is going to stop them. And and as Frank Sinatra goes to like reach out, he takes the gun, puts it in his mouth and blows his brains out. And the movie kind of uh, ends with Sinatra kind of being traumatized and, 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 and feeling like he caused all of this because he was unable to stop him at the right time. And, and just, so there's no, there's no happy, no happy why, ending. Yeah, this is why Janet Lee left him and uh, mm -hmm. went to that hotel. 
No, I, I just, you know, since I just brought up Janet Lee, I just want to say like, like she's supposed to have been like the biggest star of that era, mm -hmm. you know, and she's completely wasted in this movie. Like she, she, the only, the only thing she does is do a little character development of Sinatra's character. Yeah. Like, no, like, she's she, completely one sided, like one dimensional to the point where like a lot of the things coming out of her mouth just feel like gibberish. Oh my God. <laughs> like, like, the, like she meets him on the train and she's like, um, I was talking to my fiance you asked me if I was married, but you didn't ask me if I was engaged. And I told him, <laughs> we're not engaged anymore because I met you. <laughs> She's trying to sound like all suave and whatnot. And uh, it's yeah. not coming out right. She uh she gives him she gives him her uh her number and address like five times too. <laughs> this is my number and this is my address. Please come to my address. This is my number. And uh, you know, so and and, and the and the great scene is um that, that like we didn't really touch on because it didn't this I wish I had like found a better synopsis. Um, mm -hmm. Usually the IMDb ones are pretty detailed, but in this case, like sometimes. you know, this one was kind of sometimes, missed. yeah, yeah. Um, so, but like the big scene uh, during that is that he gets arrested for the police station because he sees the translator uh, who is now working at Raymond's house, and he runs up and just starts. You know, they have this kung fu fight, but then he ends up just like beating the shit out of this translator because he's, you know, it's a very, uh, it's a very once upon a time in Hollywood moment, but yeah. It was like my favorite scene. It just, all of a sudden Frank Sinatra's doing Kung Fu. Mm. <laughs> all right. So we made it, we made it through this. Um, this was, this was fun though. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, looking forward to doing uh repo man. Yeah. yeah. We are now joined by JG Michael from uh, Parallax View. Uh, good podcast, film podcast a lot of times. Um, so we kind of went through the plot of the movie, um, but I, I wanted to replay this for you. We, we kind of watched it at the beginning, but um, there's the, so there's a Ronald Reagan. I said it to you. There's a Ronald Reagan, um, very, very strange pseudo documentary where Reagan is explaining how brainwashing occurred. And this is not like a, a supposed to be like a fictional movie. It's supposed to be that, like not, yeah. not to interrupt you, but that's that's kind of funny that he's talking about, you know, brainwashing and stuff because I don't know. Re Reagan's kind of like the real Manchurian candidate of Hollywood because he was yeah. Mr. He got involved in like uh the unions, but he was bought we and just, paid for by the corporate industries. You know, yeah. we were just talking about that an hour ago and being part of GE mm -hmm. and uh Living in a house, he had like the the uh, the videotape of the house that he he lived in. Yeah, wait. So this is this is uh we'll rewatch this. It's like five minutes, but it's just this fucking really really strange. Um, yeah, this this Korean this fake Korean War documentary. Being captured by an enemy is a shocking experience for any soldier in any war. In Korea, this shock was made sharper because no one knew quite what to expect, except possibly the worst starvation and brutality maybe or torture even oriental torture such as burning bamboo splinters under the fingernails then there'd been talk of brainwashing wasn't brainwashing a big thing with the chinese maybe they even used narcotics gentlemen we welcome you to the ranks of the people's democracy we are happy to have liberated you from the Wall Street warmongers who sent you here for their profit. We have nothing against you. 
and we want to offer you a fair proposition. All we ask is cooperation and fair play. For you, this war is over, so don't fight us. Sit back, be like others, relax. Make yourselves comfortable like the other men are doing. You have nothing to fear. We want to be your friends. There are no slave camps here, no road gangs. You will not be put to work. We will give you free the best food and shelter and clothing we possibly can. Now, it won't be good by your standards. We are a poor country, but it will be the best thing we've got, and you won't have to work for it. Finally, we will give you the thing we know you really want most, a chance to learn the truth. When the warmongers have made enough money, when they let this senseless slaughter end, we just want you to go home to your own good homes and find families and simply tell them the truth as you yourselves decide the truth to be. Well, you've got to admit, this beats burning bamboo splinters under your fingernails. It was almost as irresistible as the deals you hear over the radio. Get it now. Don't deny yourself a thing. Sit back. No need to work. Get yours. Everybody else is getting theirs. Yes, this was pretty much the way in which our men were greeted by the Chinese and how their captivity began. In other wars, Americans have always organized together fairly soon after capture. They set up internal controls, escape committees, a military justice system, and groups to care for the sick and wounded. But in Korea, even though many months went by, effective internal organizations didn't develop. Yet during this period, there was no special indoctrination, no magical methods for the control of Americans, nothing except the usual hardships and deprivations of prison camps. And from Dr. Mayer's own standpoint, as a physician and psychiatrist, it was this period which disturbed him the most. Because it was during this period when most of the men who died, died. I should say it's done from the vantage point of a, a, a fictional study where this doctor is supposedly, aka like a, like a character actor in the lab coat, is uh, talking to all of these soldiers that were put in a, a prison camp and asking like, Oh, why didn't you guys escape? Or why didn't you guys, you know, why'd you guys just let this happen? So it's like, you know, and, and it's supposed to be like a, um, it's supposed to really be a documentary. Like, you know what I mean? Like their version of like a pseudo documentary. Yeah. So I, 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 I was going to say, it's, it's like hard for me to pay attention because every time I hear Ronald Reagan's voice, I want to puke. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. Give up itis, they called it when the weakest simply turned their faces to the wall, covered their heads, and within 48 hours, were dead. If only the boy's family and school and church had helped him grasp and develop the idea of personal responsibility and obligation, had weaned him away from the belief that individual effort was painful and useless, if only he had been taught that he has the ability, even alone, to meet and solve serious problems, then this cold, terrible reality would not have destroyed him. But it was after the first few months that we began to see the communist Chinese indoctrination. The application by the Chinese of a finely developed educational program, one that occupied every day, all day, seven days a week, 
for the great majority of prisoners. It was a classical anti-capitalist, anti-American diatribe of the sort the communists have been publishing for years. Afterward, there were discussions in which every prisoner was forced to participate, but not by the Chinese. Oh, no. Come on, soldier, get with it. Sum up this lecture for our instructor so we can get some chow. Then there were the public confessions, where each prisoner was required to stand up and perform an exercise of public self-criticism confessing to one and all his past sins against society. Oh, we had several slaves, about 2,000 per acre. Beyond that, we, we owned most of the land. We drove Cadillacs all over, and there was a yacht for everybody, one for me, one for my daddy, and money was nothing to us. Not because they believed what they heard or what they said, nothing of the kind. They simply went along. They did what others expected them to do even though they knew it was wrong. Why? There were some things I wasn't too proud of, I haven't mentioned before. Like the time I took your food rations when you were sick, or the time when I took medicine from you, and I also informed on some guys who were breaking out of compound 14. Well, everyone else was doing it, and to be popular, you went along too. If you didn't, well, the guy could become mighty unpopular. All right, gentlemen, dismissed. You had a free choice, of course. You could enjoy either popularity or respect. Rotten crumb. Not very many chose respect. Only a few. So, yeah, the, the first time we watched it, I was saying that uh, it reminded me of those, like, Nancy Reagan's later, like, just say no. no. Yeah, yeah right. like, uh, <laughs> it's like the peer pressure got to them. They didn't need to be brainwashed. But I mean, you know, the whole thing is uh, is just like a, a, an excuse. Maybe, maybe I, I was going to say real quick, maybe Ronald Reagan got MK Ultra. That's why he couldn't remember about <laughs> Iran Contra. Maybe that's why he couldn't remember anything. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember anything. <laughs> I do not recall. I do not recall anything about Iran Contra, about shredding well, of William, of William Casey is kind of, even among... Um, even among the intelligence community is kind of seen as like the worst uh, CIA director, right? Like at least the, the one of the least liked CIA directors. I think he was um, even known as like Wild Bill, right? No, that's uh, that's Bill Donovan. Yeah, Bill Donovan. Yeah. Yeah, but um, William Casey is the is the Iran Contra guy, the guy that was uh, Reagan's like like right hand man, and he put in charge at one point of the of the CIA, despite him not really having CIA training the experience. And, you know, yeah. Which I mean, maybe I mean it's probably better that people don't have experience, but then because there's no there's no good way to put someone in as CIA director, like you know what I mean, like because there's a bunch of them that were like career officers that obviously knew where every single body was buried that they put yeah. in charge, and those people are like already kind of in control of everything. Um, but then on top of that, you know, like if you put in someone who's never been in the CIA and they're just instantly like, all right, let's continue these ops, like <laughs> there's no like. Just, I mean, obviously, fucking abolish the CIA, but it's yeah. funny that, like, you know, I can't really guess which one is the fucking worst thing. Like, a lot of times they would disappoint, like, politicians that they liked. Like, when uh, Bush Sr. got put in charge of the CIA for, like, a year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But, well, uh... He, I was going to say real quickly, he, he relied on a resume uh, of uh, federal offices uh, to seek the presidency in 80 and then in 88 so 
Yeah. I was going to. He was a, a, he was definitely a careerist. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Just a little anecdote. Uh, there was a, an interview that I haven't published yet. I recorded it probably late last year, but there's a lot of audio issues with it, but it was with um, Gary sick who worked with uh, Carter's administration um, when it came to Iran and you know, Sick is probably most known today for having written the book, The October Surprise. And there's like, there's debate over the October Surprise. And even Gary will admit that, you know, the case is ultimately very circumstantial. But uh, he talked to Bill Casey's like, you know, family and whatnot. And they said, oh, yeah, that's something he would do. <laughs> and I just, I thought that was the most telling anecdote in like, the, no, uh, the, guy was, the interview. The guy was a scumbag. I don't know. Right. <laughs> he was a weirdo. The October surprise, I guess, for people that don't know, uh, supposedly, you know, the the Reagan campaign uh, paid off Iranians to keep the hostages until after the election. So, right. Yeah. Uh, amongst amongst other fuckery. I mean, they, they also did the thing where they stole Carter's like debate prep. Yeah. And like. Thanks to George Will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's crazy that he was the one that did that uh, or that he was, he was not yet a member of the ABC News staff and he leaked it to um no, they should. Yeah, yeah they yeah. Should have stole it. Like they, they stole it. it. Carter left it behind, and he just like picked it up and was like, "Oh, I'm gonna bring this," because he was playing Carter. Um, in in Reagan's like mock debate. Yeah, thing, which, yeah. It, it's it's also funny that Reagan's mock debate style was that he had a bunch of like one liners on those fucking. Uh, I mean, that was a speech style. There so you go one liners. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I opposed socialized medicine, there was another piece of legislation. <laughs> Talking about like when he was governor of California in the '60s, how he yeah. actually supported uh, socialized medicine before it was it was. Um, well, he uh, he uh, no, he's talking about they're talking about Medicaid. He, he yeah, was, yeah, and Medicaid. Uh, so he was like he was like oh I didn't want to like you know basically like you know make these old people not have health insurance. There was just another piece of legislation that everybody knows about that mm-hmm. I supported that would have mm-hmm. done the same thing. Mm-hmm. No? The, the funniest the funniest Ronald Reagan story I ever heard was from this I mean he's sort of a friend of mine now because I've interviewed him so much but uh Ronald Reagan? What no not Ronald <laughs> Jesus not the uh, Antichrist but frequent, uh, frequent guest Ronald Reagan is but I, I had John I, I had John Barbour on who uh yeah. he's sort of into the JFK assassination and Jim Garrison and all that, but I, I'm not as interested in that. I had him on because he was he's a big showbiz figure. He started reality television with a show called Real People back in the day. But he used to do an interview show in L.A. And he had Reagan on. I mean, he had a bunch of people on the show. I think he had um, Cesar Chavez on at one point, uh, Jane Fonda at the height of her anti-war protesting. But when he had Reagan on, uh, apparently Reagan's handler was like, well, you have to tell us the questions in advance. Yeah. And Barbour was like, no, I'm not doing that. I, I I do a conversation show, and if you don't like it, I'll go out there right now, five minutes before the show, and tell the audience that Reagan isn't, you know, isn't wanting to do an actual conversation. Was, uh, after that, Reagan decided to do it, and he BS'd his way through the whole thing. He wasn't he wasn't a uh, he wasn't an off the cuff guy. No. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a, a, he a, was he was more of a, like in your face kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it was like a staged, like I don't know, like a well manicured staged polished politician in the sense of like. Mm-hmm. Literally, literally, his thing consisted of like a bunch of index cards that would have one-liners on it, and he would literally like memorize the one-liners, and then or like, and they would just all be like, oh, like something, something government, and then like you know, like 
the, the scariest phrases. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And he like had all of those different, um, you know, all of those different like jokes that people would like just kind of be disarmed and laugh at. And he would shuffle them every time and it would be pretty much the same speech, but like in a different order. Um, but then off the, when he went off the cuff, he would like, he, I mean, his brain seemed to have been going for a very long time. Yeah. There are things that he would hear, like fictional things you'd hear on TV and he'd get confused or like details from movies and he'd get confused. And all of a sudden, like out of his mouth would come like some statistic that no one had ever heard. And it turns right. out it was from like a movie that he was in like 20 years ago. Well, he had Alzheimer's. The funniest part of the story for me that John told me was that, you know, he tried doing this off the cuff, like, I'm going to hold his feet to the fire. And Reagan would just change the topic. Like, he'd be bringing up some serious topic. Like, oh, what about the wars? And, you know, uh, why don't we oppose the wars? And Reagan would just change the topic to something else about the American people and unity. It had nothing to do with what John was asking him about. John said to me, you know, he was a good operator. Uh, but you know, a horrible lying person as well. <laughs> well, he, he he also he found out you know the Carter debate is a great example because you know the, their strategy was that he just wanted to make Carter appear mean, like that mm -hmm. was the entire strategy. Like he didn't have to win the debate. Carter just had to look like an asshole. And Carter spent <laughs> four years not like being a fucking. I I call Carter like a strange elven man. Like he kind of reminds me of like a like a like an elf on like wingtip shoes or something. You know what I mean? Like he was, just, <laughs> yeah. he was, he was yeah. strange and like odd and like austere, but like. He wasn't mean, like he was. He was like the nice guy. So by like ruining that image that the American people seem to have of Carter, like Reagan just decimated him without even like because they did the same thing they did with Trump, where they're like fact checking. Yeah, like, I, I know. Not I, true, and he's like, like I, I know we're going off into a Reagan tangent, but I, I just wanted to say this because I've always found it interesting. Out of all the like presidents we've had since like I don't know Eisenhower, Kennedy, maybe, but. Like, just Reagan is, to me, he's like the Patrick Bateman American psycho of presidents. I have no, there's there's nothing I can sympathize with. Like, right. I mean, I mean, Nixon, Nixon was a horrible crook, but he's also yeah. like some guy that's bitter because he wasn't brought up within the Eastern establishment the way the Kennedys were. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, the, the 1972 visit uh, to China, I think was important. He at least gave us like the Endangered Species Act and some environmental protections but like Reagan just wanted to wreck the entire welfare state. It's just an exactly. empty suit. There's well, nothing there. You Nixon, know, it's like Nixon Patrick was, Bateman. It, Nixon was Nixon was a punching bag. That's what Nixon was. Nixon was had spent 50 years being a punching bag. And like we were talking about Nixonland, like uh, the Rick Perlstein book, and you really get a, a feel for it in there. Like Nixon has spent like 50 years getting just like the shit kicked out of him, pretty much, and just eating shit because like you know because every single time they're like, oh, you can't win, but he would show up every single time. To like you know what i mean like to campaign for whoever the person is he'd bide his time he would he would uh one story that rick perlstein had in in that book was um that he would travel around like travel around to every republican fundraiser after losing the nomination with one aide and would just show up and like give these speeches and you know and and he he almost i mean he was he was manicured in a very different way than reagan was reagan obviously mm -hmm. was like the hollywood candidate and nixon kind of had like nixon had like these weird people kind of trying to make like a like a, a tv Thing out of him because he was so terrified of TV after uh, his whole Kennedy debacle. So he, he kind of was he was scripted in a very different way. But he had like the most Machiavellian like sociopathic mind when it came to elections. Like oh if, yeah 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 like he there's just nothing he wasn't willing to do. But that's kind of where his whole career was. That's why he was a fucking punching bag. Like there, he spent his career like there wasn't anything he wasn't willing to do. So it was like when when it come came time to like I don't know like like fucking like burgle a hotel. He's like. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, mean, I mean, what the, what they did to Daniel Ellsberg is like, you know, terrible breaking into a psychiatrist's office and whatnot. Yeah. I'm not trying to. Yeah. There's just something about like, there's something about Reagan that like, he's just. I don't know how anyone can like Reagan. I don't find anything likable about him. Just like like even in the way he presents himself, I'm like, oh my god, this is the most shallow, just Hollywood human being alive. Well, nobody can really criticize him either. I mean, he's you know very much elevated to sainthood in the Republican yeah. Party. Yeah, and, and after um, the fact, like yeah, he, I don't too. think like when he left office, like he he kind of got thatchered uh, at that point. Like you know what I mean? Like it kind of was like his his uh, his consensus, I guess, kind of fell apart towards the end, yeah. and Bush kind of took the brunt of it, and that's why Bush. See, but that, that's what's so weird about him too, because it's like you can, see, I mean. If you watch that Showtime documentary that just came out a few months ago, The Reagans, I think it came out back in October, mm-hmm. actually. Was I was talking to Matt Turnauer about that, the guy that directed it. And it's it's a very good documentary. But, you know, the parallels between him and Trump are, like, very obvious, right down yeah. to, like, make America great again. Great again. Like, yeah. And he, he used to, he used to, uh, he was in bed with Birchers back in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, you know. And I, yet, I, like, I that, yeah. I say, and yet none of his children ever even like approved of Trump. Like his atheist, like progressive son, Ron, well, he Ron Jr. Yeah, Reagan did yeah. not like Trump. Reagan saw Trump as kind of this like weird cloying, like hanging on, like you know, like because he Ray, um Trump tried to reach out to Reagan. Trump tried to lobby Reagan for a job at one point, like, mm-hmm. and he even tried to criticize Reagan like harshly in the fucking uh in, in the New York Times. He took out like a full page ad, like. Trump tried to do all these different uh, things, and, and Reagan couldn't fucking stand it. The difference between, I think, all of the other Republicans we've really had, maybe not Bush so much, but like, uh, like Bush Jr. I mean, but like the difference between, yeah. <laughs> the difference between like uh, these conservative figures, like and and Reagan is that Reagan kind of had like this weird optimistic, like this weird optimistic sunny thing. side, like morning in America. Well, he, he was like yeah. he was like a positive thinking type guy. He was obsessed with that yeah. like, positive thought movement stuff, which. It's actually Trump has some overlap with that too, but yeah, like, Reagan was just like he thought the will of his mind, you know, the power of his will, almost like in a Nietzschean way. Uh, he probably wasn't, you know, that well read, so he didn't read <laughs> Nietzsche. But you get my point. Like, yeah. He thought just the power of his imagination would move the world. <laughs> he also had an astrologer traveling around. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he loved it. <laughs> That's something I picked up from that uh, Reagan's documentary. But, he he um, probably he probably had had a point though in a way because he was so. He was so like forceful in his like, well, I'm just right, and you know, I'm gonna yeah. force my will down everyone's throat. That that it actually worked for him. He was you couldn't penetrate him with criticism because he wasn't self-reflective. Yeah, like but it, it, the whole thing is that um, I feel like he's like the distillation of American empire in that sense. Like, you know, like all these other people, like I don't know, like like Nixon had like detente, and like it was like all right, this is like a like a because he really considered himself like the the foreign policy like like the foreign policy maven or whatever. Like he really was someone who understood the intricacies of it. And so did Kissinger and right. Reagan's fucking foreign policy was just like, well, like we're, we're not going to even like, like move with them unless they, you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it's just so like he was the distillation of American empire because he wouldn't even work with the fucking like USSR to try to like maintain peace with them. Like he was tearing up treaties. Like he, he kind of just felt like it was the, the boot of American empire coming down fully hard uh which is why i think so many like conservatives were in love with reagan was because like you know they spent decades trying to be like why are we even doing this whole like cold war dance like we should just nuke the shit out of them and it seemed like reagan would be was the closest person to like doing that but
But at the same time, I think that conservative politics in the end is is kind of focused on grievance, like more yeah. than anything else. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like the conservative brand is is white hot rage, literally white mm-hmm. hot rage, and mm-hmm. like and, and just grievance politics. It's why yeah. like Tucker Carlson has done so well because literally he's just like the embodiment of like 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 angry grievance. Like so. Reagan's kind of the one figure that's not really like that. I mean, it's kind of sad that his movie career didn't take off, but like, yeah. you know, like that's kind of the saddest thing you can really uh, say about like his, his, his career. Well, I mean, I think grievance plays a role with Reagan too, because his big thing was always, you know, oh, I, I was an FDR Democrat, man. I was an FDR Democrat. Yeah. I didn't leave the democratic party. The democratic the party, left, party me. left me, which, you know, that's dog whistling. We know what he means yeah. by that, but. Well, it's sort of that's why the thing with Carter was so important. You know, he had to be sympathetic. So making Carter look mean, making it look like Carter was bullying him, despite the fact mm-hmm. that Carver, Carter was literally just this like weird, lighthearted, like like elven creature, like literally just like floating above like the you know, like Carter's so fucking weird. Like after after reading fucking Reaganland, I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this dude was president. 70s politicians, Democrats in general, were kind of like that. Like they were all into yeah. like all the new age shit. And like the way like it, it was clearly like like proto neoliberal politics or like early neoliberal politics. But like the way that they said it was like, as if they had like done acid a few too many times and like, (laughs) they're looking at everything through like a prism. And at the moment after, you know, Nixon had just been like this, this force of despair, like everybody kind of was like, Oh wow, maybe we'll try that. And then Reagan kind of came in and was just like America, America, America. I I was going to say it's, (laughs) it's funny because tying that back to the Manchurian Kennedy, isn't it fascinating how, I think Manchurian Candidate comes about in the film comes in what 62, 1962. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like just, you know, in the 70s, just a decade later, you know, we have a whole new type of paranoid thriller that is more like, oh, maybe we should be more distrustful of our own government. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Alan J. Pacula type films like All the President's Men include <laughs> um Parallax View, which is probably my favorite of those. But they're, they're very different. It's not – they don't play off of the same uh, type of paranoia. They're more like, oh, the, the force that is destroying the country is actually from within, and it's not an alien force either. But, mm-hmm. you know, what? You know, just a few years prior, it was all communism and McCarthy, you know. That's where, the, that's where, like, the morning in America slogan for Reagan comes in because he comes in essentially, like, you know, after this, this decade where, like, nobody trusted our government, no one trusted – I mean, Reagan least of all, but, like, Nobody trusted our country anymore. No one trusted the people around them. He's like, it's okay to love American empire again. So he like steps out and he's like, it's a different day. Like, and people really like clung to that because people don't want to be cynical. Obviously they kind of just at the time anyway, wanted to be like, just kind of blindly patriotic. And right. They want to be like that. optimistic patriots. Yeah. Like right. at the time when every single thing like media wise and like, you know, press wise was telling you like, Oh, we're wrong. Here's what's wrong. Like the church committee yeah. came out with the CIA, like, every like scandal after scandal reagan was like the one person who was willing to just like step in and be like maybe maybe love in america you know if, if love in america is a crime i'm fucking guilty and then everyone's just like oh look at this guy <laughs> you know in some ways we're kind of back to that point i mean just uh just recently it was the you know the the pentagon papers the anniversary yeah. of the pentagon yeah. papers yeah. and I, i'll give the new york times credit they published a piece by andrew basevich who was one of the few conservatives I like agree with certain things on, especially foreign policy, because he's anti-war. He believes in climate change, thinks racism is a problem. Uh, But, you know, he published a piece in the New York Times saying 
you know, we need to look back at the Pentagon Papers and learn lessons from it. But they also had to publish another piece, which was by some neoconservative goon that was saying what Ellsberg did was an assault on democracy. Oh, that, that, um, that piece, when you actually read it, the final paragraph, it wasn't about Ellsberg or the Pentagon Papers at all. The final, pa- the, the final paragraph of it actually pretty much just said, and that's why we shouldn't pardon Snowden. Right. Well, exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's all part of this, like, oh, any anyone who, you know, questions the system is unpatriotic. <laughs> yeah. That guy wrote a book called, like, uh, he wrote a book, like, it's okay to have secrets. Like, it's a book right. that justifies having secrets in the security mm-hmm. state. Like, he's the most ghoulish of the, like, of the um, apologists for, for our, uh, for fucking CIA activities and shit. Well, I mean, it, it, it's just interesting because, like, both... Um, you know, both parties try to like play off civic nationalism these days. I mean, the Democrats do it in their own way, but there there is sort of like a nationalist bent to all our politics, at least the mainstream ones in uh, America. Oh, I, I wanted to. Uh, this is the other clip I I took from the uh, from the Reagan the Reagan brainwashing thing, um, just to get us back, I guess on 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 track with this, but I, I agree. sorry for ranting. No, it's all right. I think that, um, I, I think that Biden oh, yeah. kind of has Biden's like blind, dumb optimism kind of has some parallels to, uh, to Reagan in a weird way. But, um, <clears throat> anyway, so this is, this is the, this is the other clip I took from the, uh, Reagan one. Expect it seems earned its own reward, not from your fellow POWs, but from the Chinese who always acted promptly. Poor fellow. What a shame. Obviously, he doesn't place the need of the group above his own selfish purposes. We won't hurt him. We'll take good care of him, just as good as we are taking care of you. Those heroic soldiers who did try to organize the others for escape or to resist the Chinese were segregated in special heavily guarded camps for hopeless reactionaries. In this way, divide and conquer. Utter planned isolation of the individual was accomplished by substituting the standards and values of the group for those of the individual. Men who didn't conform, who tried to lead, were denounced as poisonous individualists and segregated as criminals. This is the fundamental device of communism, based on the idea that one man has no significance. He is just a fragment of the mass, the class. Becoming and remaining in favor with the Chinese included informing on fellow prisoners, telling about bad attitudes and reactionary remarks, or infractions of camp rules. But it really didn't mean much, because after all, the man informed upon was never punished. Not actually. He had only to confess his crime to a sympathetic camp instructor, write an essay promising never to repeat his crime against society, and sign it. That's all. Now, what harm is there in this? The man informed upon wasn't really furious at the man who'd informed on him. He didn't go back to camp and try to kill him or beat him up. He never felt exactly the same about that fellow again, was careful what he said, and never got close to anyone again. He became more isolated, alone. Man, it's cold out there. Must be 30 below. Hey, 
you guys are stinking up this place. Come on, you. All of you, outside. Come on, on your feet. Out. Come on, outside. Yeah, so you can see where, like, the Manchurian candidate, I guess, is uh, kind of taken right from... Man, like, talk about brainwashing. Yeah. <laughs> having to, like, write an essay is like write, having to write an NDA. Don't ever tell anybody about it. Yeah. I kind of thing. It's, it's, it's fucking... It's, it's just... It's fucking fascinating, that whole thing, because, like, <laughs> honestly, like, my thought is, like, oh, wow, like, Chinese fucking... Like intern, like or whatever, like Chinese fucking prisoner camps just seem based. Like, they're like you don't have to do anything. Don't worry. Like, just kick your feet up. And Reagan's like, that's where that's when they get you. If they if they had <laughs> given them get. if they had given them the bamboo and under the fingernails, no, everyone would have uh, everyone would have escaped. But it's those it's those nice Chinese that are, and we're not even. I mean, like obviously, like the Chinese had sent you know um, a lot of troops you know uh, to fight for for North Korea, but like. Right. It's not like we were at war with China specifically. Like it was a proxy Ooh. war. I mean, you know what I mean? Like so like the, yeah. the fact that like his entire focus is just on like the Chinese, like you don't see Korea mentioned in that fucking movie once. No, not at all. <laughs> There's not like one single mention of Korea at yeah. all. That, period. That whole time I just kept thinking of a really based uh 1960s movie called War Hunt, which I don't I think I may be like one of the few people who has seen that movie because no one remembers it. But it's uh, it stars John Saxon, John Saxon, who would later uh, appear in movies like he was the lieutenant in Nightmare on Elm Street. He was in Black Christmas. Uh, oh, and Enter the Dragon. He's the, the white dude. But um, it's a really interesting movie because it's an anti-war film, and he plays a a um, a, a member of the army who just he enjoys killing and he can't stop. And it's ultimately like very much a meditation on war and how bad it is. And it's funny because no one remembers that movie, even though I think it uh, won awards and whatnot, but everyone remembers these like documentaries and movies like Manchurian Candidate saying, oh, the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Yeah. And, and I mean, some of the more satirical takes on it, like Dr. Strangelove, obviously is going to be seen as like an American classic forever. Um, yeah. That's true. Yeah. But, yeah. Like, I don't know. We watched uh, we watched Kiss Me Deadly for the first episode, and it was kind of like okay, a, yeah. It was kind of like a proto. It's like a proto, um, like satirical look at the Cold War. I feel like because it was coming out like a year after, um, coming out a year after the McCarthy hearings, which is kind of. Bald I mean, I think though you can get away with like satirical anti-war and like counterculture films back then, whereas like I don't know the more serious ones people don't remember as much. Like uh, there's that one Dalton Trumbo did. Uh, Johnny got his gun, but you know that movie's like really, really intense. I think they used footage of it in um, Metallica's music video for one, but no one remembers that one either because you know, like you do a real serious meditation on, hey, maybe war isn't you know all it's cracked up to be. Maybe all of this uh, patriotism we have around, ura, let's go to war. Maybe it's a bad thing, but you don't you don't really see those films 
being remembered that much these days. I mean, I Strange Love, of course, but that's more on yeah. the the comedy side. Yeah, I, I don't think necessarily you could get away with it um, in like the fifties when Kiss Me Deadly was yeah. coming out. Um, mm-hmm. But like in the sixties and seventies, I mean, really, when Vietnam fell apart was a you know yeah when, when what, started, New Hollywood, yeah. I think yeah. in the you know, but by the late sixties, things get a little bit more open to experimentation. You know, because movies like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider come out, and there is sort of a rebel atmosphere, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, I mean, in the fifties, you still had, like the Hayes Code, which is you know we kind of had a yeah a long conversation about that, which is like, and and you know, um, Manchurian Candidate too, you know, came out, you know, and and the Hayes Code was just falling apart, and you see the end of it when he you know he takes out uh takes out his mom and his stepdad like. It was two years after the Hayes Code had fallen apart. He still has to kill himself I, at the end of I that. wanted to talk about that ending yeah. for a second here, if we could, because yeah. I, I love, you know, they have that tacked on scene at the end where Frank Sinatra is like, he gave his life for love of country. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think Lawrence Harvey's character did it for love of country. I think he just really hated his stupid mother. Yeah. Like, no, it's very personal, you know? He never, he doesn't mention uh, country once throughout that movie. Right, you know what I mean? Like that's never his motivation. He's just like, ah, fuck this bitch. Well, the other <laughs> thing, the, the, the funny thing about the movie too is, I think there's a little bit of ambiguity to what Angela Lansbury actually believes ideologically. I'm not sure that she's actually like committed to communism. I think she's just she a power she's junkie. She says yeah. she's not committed to uh, to communism. Um, at the end of it, she says, "My plan is to uh, exert so much power that I push out the Soviet influence." Her her only yeah. ideology is power. Like, yeah, um, you know, and you know, well, that, that's why the Jordan Jim Jordan, the one congressman that hates her, the senator that hates her, he's right about her. She's a fascist mm-hmm. rally type. You know, yeah, and you know, I, I think that I mean, it's, it's talking really about you know McCarthy, like the the thought that like you know, I mean, not that you know the Soviets aren't like it's not that the Soviets are harmless and they're not trying to take over the government. They clearly are, but like. The bigger threat in the end is Angela Lansbury, like believing that she can kind of just control everything. Like she kind of is a, more of like a more of like a, a Hitler type figure almost than like a like a, a Soviet like expansionist. You know what I mean? And like, I, I think that way, was very yeah. that was very felt in Hollywood at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mentioned Dalton Trumbo. Uh, you know, he was you know out blacklisted for so mm-hmm. long, and even even people that weren't necessarily completely blacklisted. People like Vincent Price. I know uh, his daughter has talked about this. Uh, before he became Mr. Horror Movie Guy in the 70s and whatnot, he was sort of like graylisted because they thought, oh, he's he's a pinko or something. You know, he's yeah, one of these yeah. communist sympathizers. A lot of people suffered in the film industry because of that. Yeah. No, and, um, you know, I mean. Amongst uh, other Graylisted is, is, um, is a great term for it because, you know, even, even the people that aren't necessarily um, – that aren't blacklisted are kind of given like warnings. Like tons of people didn't end up blacklisted, but still have to like speak in front of the uh, the House on American Activities Committee. And also yeah. the, the people that did end up having to speak in front of the House on American Activities Committee and like buckling to the subpoena, um, uh-huh. kind of a lot of them took off and didn't weren't in films again until the sixties because they felt so bad that like people that they considered friends and like acquaintances they kind of ratted on. Um, well, Lauren Bacall and uh, Boogie Bacall, I think, or Humphrey Bogart rather. Um, they they testified in the committee and they they were able to work, but I think that was some. Um, no, it was it was personal. It was like personal. Oh. Um, people were so <laughs> conflicted uh, at that point by their own actions because you know it's you know they're they're basically snitching on their coworkers and yeah. 
there wasn't any like within the fervor there wasn't any thought to like oh these people aren't gonna be able to work for the next 30 years and they're gonna be blacklisted like kind of just like kind of the, the feeling of being scared shitless by like mccarthy and like the thought that maybe there is like soviet infiltration and and like i don't know like everything that happened during that time period everywhere in the country was pretty fucking reactionary yeah um like when people are like oh you know it's just like it's just the times it's just the times like in 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 this case like it kind of fucking is like <laughs> not that yeah. it justifies anything but like yeah, the, the consequences were fucking you know terrifying if uh yeah i well, think people yeah. people can be surprised too by like some of the people that sold their you know friends in hollywood out like uh you know even like frank capra people don't know this because the capra estate you know basically tried to cover it up for a long time but Capra sold out a lot of his friends, yeah. you know, because, oh, I don't want to be called a communist. And it's funny because Capra was a lifelong Republican, too. So <laughs> also had a huge thing against immigrants. But there were a lot of people that just sold out their colleagues. Oh, yeah, definitely. They're communists. <laughs> it's pretty or funny like, that fucking uh, Jimmy Stewart was one of the most reactionary people in, in, in Hollywood for his entire life. He was, uh, yeah, he was... He was terrible. Well, well, along with that uh, selling out, selling other people out, like Cliff Robertson, a famous actor who was in No Way to Treat a Lady, sold uh, one of his friends out for check embezzlement in the 70s when he was working for Columbia Pictures. And that actor, I think, was jailed and never worked again. Yeah. Cliff Robertson, you know, worked up until his passing, up until his dying day. Yeah. I mean, there there are some people that are like you know I mean like like look at Reagan's type of uh type of like vapid whatever like he had no problem selling out anybody like mm -hmm. he I don't think at any point in his life he ever thought to feel conflicted about it yeah um, well the, 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 I mentioned the Capra thing too by the way just be, everyone always finds that shocking that he would sell people out because everyone thinks of him as like right. oh his films are so pro labor and pro left but you know yeah you'd be but, surprised uh, if you look into the history of it. Was selling people out <laughs> yeah. like. That's true. Everybody was selling everybody out, but like a lot of stuff was being kept locked up uh, because the studios were really kind of tight knit. I think uh, what JG was saying in the seventies, uh, like in the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies, through throughout that period, uh, the studios started kind of letting letting their guards down a little and started revealing pretty much everything that was going on in Hollywood. Now we know. Pretty much now we know pretty much everything that goes on in hollywood because the studios uh, just don't have much control anymore yeah well the studio system broke um, yeah it broke big time pretty 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 quickly uh in the i often tell people i hope that happens again i don't think it will though. <laughs> <laughs> well see now that now the whole problem is that like it's not even there's like a studio system it's that the the media consolidation has gotten so bad that like right. Yeah, you can't even imagine those companies falling apart, and you can't imagine like uh like you know as as much as he was a as much as he was essentially like um probably the most abhorrent like person ever in fucking U.S. history like Teddy Roosevelt and his crusade against like trusts like during mm -hmm. that like the reformist period like you can't see anything like that ever happening again. No. Um, you know, know. And, and you know the the studio system broke because you know. All, like all of these other markets opened up and like all of these, you know, every other country was producing movies. And if you wanted your movies made, you could just kind of start a, a movie theater and you know what I mean? So like for a movie studio, like, so that's kind of when it, all of that stuff fell apart, but like, yeah, like the, the consolidation at this point is rigid, like to the point where it, to be on a mainstream or out of a mainstream studio anyway, like 
I, I don't think that's ever that consensus is ever breaking. The, the names will change, I'm sure, but like, yeah, yeah, the the I don't know, like it's crazy, it's it, crazy, it's no better, way. yeah, it's like just better. The ratio of a thing, just change the name, and then everyone yeah. forgets, or the studios do, yeah, and they're not really per like they're not really person driven anymore, like, yeah, not like, at all, uh, it's all uh electronically driven. Well, it's like it's corporate driven. Like, yeah, you know what I mean, like, like I, I often tell people, I'm like, when I look at a guy like Michael Bay or uh, <laughs> like a Zack Snyder, these guys feel like they're like just hired guns that do what the studios say. Like, if a tour theory, you know, there's holes in a tour theory, anyways. But yeah, there are definitely no tours today. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, give them a bunch of money, make it make a Superman movie. <laughs> Give them a bunch of money, make them a, make a Star Trek movie, make all these big ass franchises that will either flop. I mean, most of the stuff that's come out in the last like five years doesn't really perform expe- to uh, people's expectations. And what next? I mean, well, it's, I it's weird that- because capitalism, I thought, was supposed to allow for individualist creative expression, yeah. but everything seems so streamlined now. It's almost like, hmm, maybe it doesn't do what we think it does. The thing is, the the thing is, I think that um. A lot of the the more auteurish figures, I guess, are uh, you know, I mean, they're making their movies online. They're kind of financing it themselves. But then it comes to distribution. And it's like if you want it distrib- like distributed, like kind of have to make a deal with some company somewhere, whether that's a streaming service or something else. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're they're willing to give so much creative freedom, like creative freedom, that it ruins an artist. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like because everything all of a sudden uh, for them is like you know, I mean, they, they they send notes back and stuff, but they're like, oh, don't worry, you can do anything you want. And it's like. You know, it's behind the scenes, there's studio interference. Yeah. And and also just it's too big, like it's too big. Like they they hand budgets that are like this huge budget, and then the person's just kind of like uh, uh uh like I was reading about um Vulture did a thing on uh Ryan Murphy, the American horror stories guy, and his mm-hmm. Netflix deal, mm-hmm. and like how that's ruined his fucking creativity because it's like he just has someone like he's just like, Oh, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, and it's all like just trash at yeah. this point. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm just curious, did you guys get a chance to talk about, so John Frankenheimer, the director of The Manchurian Candidate, he got Mm -hmm. to follow this up with a little movie called Seven Days in May. Did you guys get to mention that before? No, I haven't seen that. Okay, you're going to have to do a movie night on that because that's actually extremely subversive for a movie that came out in 1974 that Frankenheimer actually did the movie at the request of Kennedy. Uh, when when John F. Kennedy was president, and it's a movie slightly influenced by the what was it the the Wall Street push or the the, the Wall Street plot that Smedley Butler uh, exposed. But it's it's about uh, a group of right wing generals in the Pentagon that plan to overthrow the president. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's very very subversive for a movie that came out in 1964. And in a way, I, I, it's much more. Um, upfront about the dislike of you know right-wing sort of mccarthyite politics in that era than even the manchurian candidate could be yeah well and and kennedy kind of represented a a a break from that like a break from that style of politics like a a break from because i I was talking about this with people on uh on 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 twitter like a couple days ago like i've been reading a lot of stephen kinzer and there's like you know um kennedy kind of understood more than any other president really at the time that like he understood that nationalism like democratic nationalism does not equal communism Mm -hmm. whatsoever like 
democratic nationalism and, and like post-colonial, like, I, I don't know, like liberation movements are something that could be easily like driven to the, to the U.S. side. Um, like e even if they're like kind of third worldist movements. So like there's, you know, after relentlessly like pursuing Sukarno in Indonesia um, during Eisenhower, there was like a, a short two year break where they kind of, we, we like, we were still training um, people at Fort Leavenworth, obviously, but like we kind of uh, let Sukarno back into the, to the, you know, the, the national or the global stage because, you know, Kennedy was like, he's going to go to the Soviet Union. Like, I understand like, like, he's not going to go to the Soviet Union if he has like Americans as an ally, but like he is like, if, if you're just like, yo, fuck this guy, he's going to start getting <laughs> weapons from fucking. I'm, I'm assuming you guys have read the Jakarta method. Yeah. Yeah. I have it's, it right here. One, one of the most interesting yeah. aspects of that book. And one of the points that Vincent Bevins is making in that, that I think sometimes people miss the real victims of the cold war in a lot of ways were the non-aligned movement. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it was these, it was the third world that got stuck between the two sides and, you know, they suffered the most out of all in that conflict. And, and Kinzer makes that point pretty frequently too um, during that time period, because, you know, first of all, you know, Eisenhower had uh, Alan, or Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles as the two, like, you know, like the, the overt and covert, like, like handholding of the state. And they had no interest whatsoever in like a non-aligned movement. Like, to them, like to especially to John Foster Dulles, like if you weren't like aligned with America, you were a communist. Like there's no there's no middle ground. There was no like understanding that like a third worldist movement might want liberation because he didn't even view like uh, African Asian like you know he didn't view them as like Latin American like as people really to start with. You know like yeah, well the Dulles brothers had like a very it's like they have a very black and white like yeah. good versus evil sort of. I mean they were very you know, influenced by Christian theology in its American form. Really came to uh, Hitler, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, <that's true. laughs> But, yeah. No, and, and that kind of is what, you know, got us into the Cold War situation that we were in. And then, you know, I mean, under Kennedy, like, Kennedy kind of understood. Kennedy really did, like, he ran on being more of a sympathetic uh, Cold Warrior, but sympathetic to liberation movements in, in these different countries. Yeah, I, I think the, the best frontier. way to put it is, like, a slightly less insane version of a cold warrior. <laughs> yeah. Or no, just, I mean, maybe just a, a cold warrior that also understands that uh, they, are, the interests aren't black and white. Like, so like it's, it's a, it's a more, it's nuanced. Um, like, but it's not like, it's not like he was stopping, uh, you know, cause he was obsessed with fucking killing Castro. Like mm. he thought about mm -hmm. killing Castro nonstop every day of the fucking week because he was so embarrassed by the fucking, uh, Bay of Pigs, like within like a year of taking office. So like, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, that's definitely true. I guess I'm just saying that like, th I think there are even elements further to the right of, of Kennedy that like by comparison, like they make Kennedy look completely sane, you know, <laughs> yeah. in terms of foreign policy. I mean, you look at like a general Edwin Walker or a Curtis LeMay, like they're, they're pretty extreme figures in their thinking about the cold war. Yeah. And then, and then you have like LBJ, who is kind of just disinterested. Like, yeah, the Vietnam War is really his one foreign policy obsession. And like, if, if somebody- Trying to end the war and uh, yeah. get out safely. He ends up greenlighting the, the massacres in, uh, in in Indonesia because he's upset that Sukarno, not that Sukarno is, is allying with the fucking Soviet Union. He's just disinterested in the entire thing and realized that Sukarno isn't gonna be his like Vietnam ally. 
So like, you know, finally Alan Dulles gets like and his accolades get to do it and like, you know, just help fucking like destroy Indonesia because LBJ is just like, well, I don't, I have no use for him and I don't really care. Like, right. <laughs> um, and, and Vincent Bevins makes that point. Uh, and, and uh, like, I, I was working on a, a documentary that didn't end up getting finished and I hope one day it does, but I was working on a Jakarta method documentary because he gave a, a, a talk at Jacobin and, uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I was like cutting that down and that's what made, got me interested in Stephen Kinzer because I was trying to find footage of um, the Dulles brothers for that documentary. Um, mm-hmm. And I like couldn't find them anywhere. And then I finally like found that Stephen Kinzer book. But um, K- Kinzer, uh, by the well, way, is like one of the best out there. I, yeah. I, I could read everything he's written and just, you know, yeah. he is like top notch. I was so happy I had him on Parallax Views a month or so ago. And he ended the show in the funniest way possible. I was like, well, what do you think average Americans can do? And he just says, torment your congressman. (laughs) Just keep calling and writing into him. It's like, I'm not sure that'll work, but I like the torment your congressman part. See, now I'm going to have to actually find Tinser. Find his books, because now you guys are just being good influences on me about it. Now you got me interested. I think you could try to convince him to come on a stream with all of us and, like, break down a... a We should try to figure out a way to do that. Yeah, Maybe. I, yeah, I really I like the idea of doing this like around film because like I feel like every fucking leftist podcast is just kind of doing like here's what's in the news. So the idea uh, of like doing this not just based around politics but based around film and kind of um like like that like pop of, culture doing, kind of thing. yeah like doing what, it through that lens makes it a lot more interesting. In regards to the film portion of this discussion, why do you guys think that all these years later the Manchurian Candidate has such I mean, it's still really resonant and a really well-loved film, and so mm-hmm. many films have ripped it off. While I was watching, I was re-watching the movie. Well, just it's before been we on here. once. That's true. That's true. But even even if you if you go back to the seventies, there were movies like uh, Telephone with mm-hmm. um, Charles Bronson and uh, Donald Pleasance. It's a complete ripoff of the Manchurian Candidate. I mean, this this sort of plotline was recycled over and over during the Cold War, and it's still a, recycled a, now. Um, we watched this. We watched this earlier, but we can watch it again. I have a Stephen Kinzer talking about this. Um, mm-hmm. He gave a he gave a, uh, a lecture um, where he literally he literally talked about this subject. So um, here, let me try to pull this up really fast. But yeah, like the fact that in the seventies, the 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 Manchurian Candidate, um, like uh, the Manchurian Candidate genre, I guess of of film kind of takes off um, in, in like this really in this really obsessive way. Um, their minds must have been fertilized. They were open to this crazy idea. Why? I think it was because of fiction, because of the stories and the movies and the books these people absorbed as they were growing up. There were <coughs> Alan Poe stories, Sherlock Holmes stories, Gaslight, movies about Singali. People go out and kill because an evil psychiatrist has hypnotized them. And I think these guys, consciously or unconsciously, internalized this fantasy and concluded that what fiction writers could imagine, science could make real. (laughs) The interesting footnote to this is that as after MKUltra became known to the public beginning in the 1970s, it spawned a whole new genre of fiction. Books, novels, movies like Spotless Mind, Born Identity, Men in Black, all of these have mind control or mind washing as a theme. 
So a CIA project that was nurtured by fiction ultimately wound up nurturing a whole new subgenre of fiction itself. Um, regarding the Manchurian candidate, uh, it's really a, uh, a very interesting story. I, first of all, I think the uh, description that you gave is, is amazingly accurate. It's true. The only ones who really believed this stuff was possible were the people inside. They consulted other people, like, for example, the, the, at the Menninger Clinic. They conducted the, consulted the Menninger brothers, leading psychologists who ran this famous psychoanalytic institute, and they both told them, this is nonsense. You're barking up a crazy tree. This is never going to result in anything. But since that wasn't the right answer, that was just filed away. And there were other people writing in places like Argosy and True Magazine who told them, yes, it was true. So they, they loved that stuff. One of these guys they actually hired as a consultant. Uh, <laughs> So I just want to mention a little bit about the Manchurian candidate, though, specifically. Um, I found a very interesting memo uh, that uh, remarked about this. And I believe that uh, the author of this actually commented on it during a, a Senate hearing. So the book of the Manchurian candidate was the first time that masses of Americans were exposed to the idea of brainwashing. But it came out just at the time when inside the CIA, chemists were reaching the conclusion that mind control is a myth and there can never be any such thing as a Manchurian candidate. So this guy, uh, this chemist actually says that, that movie caused us, uh, that book and movie caused us a lot of problems because just as we discovered that something couldn't happen, the whole world began to believe that it could. Yeah, so I don't know. I, 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 I just want to say I'm impressed, I mean, that dude knows his movies. I mean, he yeah. just mentioned 1944's Gaslight. That's a deep cut. I want to I want to watch that for a stream now that like I've uh been been reading the the MK Ultra book he did cuz he talks about that a lot in it and I feel like it could be a cool follow-up stream. But um I didn't know that I didn't even know the term Gaslight was like that that old to be honest. Yeah, but, it came from that. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, I had that. to step away for a moment get a refill. So I'm what I miss. Yeah. When I no, just watch the end of the the Kinzer uh, clip. Um, I don't. I, I, so I think it's. I mean, one one big reason I think in the seventies that uh, this genre kind of comes out like comes out swinging is the uh, the Church Committee, and it's mm -hmm. kind of the the first time we're really finding out that like a lot of this stuff even happened. Um, and and you know, I mean, and that's that's along with you know Watergate and and the role that the fucking CIA played in in Watergate and like, you know, like so so all of this stuff kind of happens in rapid fire. And I feel like suddenly people are like, people are like, can you imagine like what the CIA has been doing this whole time? And these movies kind of come out based on that, like, like movie after movie after movie about like, you know, mind control or like about, you know, just countercultural, like countercultural fucking like anti-government, like propaganda kind of, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, just Man, all of these like... ideas kind of are, are, are happening then because like people kind of for the first time are realizing um, how dark or how far we had really gone, I guess, to try to win the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And at the tail end of the of the Cold War, I mean, you know, it, it kind of it petered on for another decade. But like at a time when like we're kind of moving our focus from Russia to like Latin America and places like in like, you know, like and, and things seem to be dying down. It seems like a perfect moment to like like look back on it and say like, you know, did we really have to do all this stuff? So, like the 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 spy thing, the spy narrative, I think takes off from there. Um, I don't know. Yeah, you know, Men in Black, the whole neuralizer thing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I didn't even think of that being a connection, but that's definitely yeah, yeah, the whole uh, memory forgetter thing they have. Yeah, flashy thing, and the aliens too. Um. So yeah. So I think that. Um, yeah, I think that there's probably a couple of directions that we can take this. I don't. Um, well, I was also thinking of um, AI. You know, artificial intelligence in a way. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of ties in with the uh, what uh, Kinzer was talking about, as far as like this boy that's a robot who um, who thinks he's real but he's not. And um, God, I got to go back and watch that movie because it's been a while since I've seen it. But um, also, it's just one of my favorite Spielberg movies. <laughs> so, uh, what's your guys' take on that as far as um, as far as Kinzer and what, how would how would you think Kinzer would um, put something like AI? I mean, I don't think that he would necessarily have a take right now on AI. He's kind of more talking mm-hmm. about like the intelligence state, which definitely, I mean, you would see uses that kind of software, but I don't think is necessarily fully uh, tied in with the foreign policy aspect of it yet. I, I'd be interested to hear um, what Kinzer thinks of like drones, like mm-hmm. that, that kind of warfare because the the book that i like one of the last ones that i read overthrow kind of stops the iraq war the the thing that gets me is just how much um this sort of like red scare paranoia is still with us i mean i get it that you know people got pulled into russiagate and whatnot but like even i i saw that there was a new york times op-ed I think it was on June 25th, Chris Carter, X-Files creator, mm-hmm. wrote a whole piece about like, well, conspiracy theories are B- BS and, you know, there's not going to be any revelations about UFOs, which I, I think he's right about that. I don't think we're going to have any revelations about unidentified aerial phenomena. But then right in the middle of this little op-ed, he says, but, you know, there are some conspiracies that are true. Like, you know, definitely the Russians and the Cubans are hitting our uh, embassies with microwave radio weapon technology. And I'm like, oh, that how one is this any different? That microwave radio. That, um, that one was spread in 2020. Um, yeah. Like as the election was heating up, there was, a, there was an article that came out that was like these, uh, these like ex-intelligence people, which why the fuck would you trust them? But like, I think it was in the Daily Beast and the Daily Beast just like loves to just report like, you know, Cause they're like kind of the, I like to call them like the, the vanguard of establishment media. You know what I mean? Like they're kind yeah. of like, they're kind of the farthest you can get to trash. I think within yeah. the, establishment media. <laughs> well, the thing is people like, like Carter yeah. and like the daily beast are saying, well, you know, conspiracy theories are crap unless, you know, they're conspiracy theories about evil foreign governments. Yeah. yeah. Like, so, they, so they, they, they had a, a thing where these, uh these ex intelligence, like this ex intelligence guy came back and claimed that like, he, he thinks that the Russians had hit him with like a, a microwave ray or something. And like, it was just un, like uncritically reported by the daily beast. They're like, did you hear about what happened to this guy? Mm-hmm. And it was like, clearly at a time where uh, the democratic party was trying to, to prove that they were tougher on Russia and China than Trump was. And so like this, this Russia gate moment, it kind of seemed like it died down for a second, started back up again. And that was like one of the more ridiculous, the more ridiculous ones. I don't. I mean, for me, it's like a koi bono thing. Like, what, what exactly does Cuba have to gain from this? I mean, I, you know, it kind of sucks for Cuba because you know we were starting to normalize relations, and then yeah. Trump screwed all that up, and now he they're being accused the of microwave weapons targeted at you know. And, and Biden, Biden shows no interest in like 
the two foreign policy things, the two foreign policy policy, I think accomplishments of the Obama administration that were positive, like mm -hmm. listen lists of ones that were negative. And the two that were positive was normalizing relations with Cuba um, or starting to like, like thawing that out, starting to end the blockade and they ran JCPOA, right? Yeah. And, 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 and Biden, Biden shows no interest in, in salvaging either of those, uh, those accomplishments, which are big accomplishments, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, and, and his Definitely. his entire uh, State Department is taken out of the Obama State Department, and they seem to not want to salvage their um, their accomplishments either. Right. <laughs> it's like they're trying to like you know whitewash their own history, to put it bluntly. Yeah, or appear tough enough, like appear tough enough that they're they're willing to get rid of all positive developments and well, just it's, right. I think a lot of it is driven by this, like, well, I have, I'm Joe Biden. I have to unify the country. And, you know, we have to listen to what the Republicans are saying. It's like, <laughs> no, that always just ends with you getting pushed even further to the right than you right. already are. But. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's also moments where he's pushed, uh, he pushed Reagan and Bush to the right. That's true. Kind of, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. Fucking, like terrifying, but also hilarious. Like, and, and he, he just tried doing it again. Wait, I'll find, I'll find the clip of it. He, um, his, the Biden administration is once again doing the exact same thing that Biden did in the, in the nineties with the, with the crime bill. Um, I found this the other day. I got to go back a while. Um, but Jen, Jen Psaki, um, Jen basically, Psaki. basically, uh, uh, whitewashed Biden's, um, Biden's long criminal record by like or Biden's long criminal justice record by saying like, Oh, like, you know, uh, I, I don't think that the, Hold on, let me let me see if it's let me see if it's this one. Um, because she said it, she said it in a very fucking terrifying kind of way, to be honest. Um and I will note that while the president ran on and won the most votes of any candidate in history in a platform of boosting funding for law enforcement after Republicans spent decades trying to cut the cops program, which again is public record. We don't need to uh, under under uh, undervalue the the intelligence of the American people. And the sad part is it that we have we have no more police in the streets of our major cities than we had ten years ago. And what the president proposes won't help much. What he proposes is no increase over what the Congress has already approved last year. In a nutshell, the president's plan doesn't include enough police officers to catch the violent thugs, not enough prosecutors to convict them, not enough judges to sentence them and not enough prison cells to put them away for a long time. So notwithstanding the fact some of the old Democrats and former presidents who were Democrats before Carter, I suspect, I don't know who, we, who we're talking about here, but in the old days, it is true. When Richard Nixon was running for president, Richard Nixon used to talk about law and order and the Democratic response was law and order with justice, whatever either one of those meant. I never knew. I was running then in 1972. I didn't think Richard Nixon knew what it meant, and I didn't think the opposition knew what it meant. Crime is not Democrat or Republican. Making the streets safe is not a Democratic or Republican issue. This is one of those issues I hope this passage of this bill will do, will be taken out of the gridlock category and moved into an emerging consensus. And the consensus is as follows, and I will cease when I finish this statement. The consensus is, A, we must take back the streets. I, I always love, they're so obsessed with consensus. They're just like, we have to, we have to have the consensus. Wow. This isn't about partisan politics. Wow. 
But like, but it's the same. It's the same. I mean, because everybody tried to act like in 2020, like Biden had uh, evolved on criminal justice. And then Jen Psaki stands up and goes, well, Republicans have been trying to cut funding for decades. All right. So when when was Biden making that point? When he was pushing the crime bill, when he was pushing fucking uh, mandatory sentencing, when he was pushing Bush and Reagan to the right on policing, like that's when Biden was making those points. And it's the exact same point now that there's like a, a crime wave that they're willing to jump back on. Um, and also it's, it's fucking terrifying, honestly, because it's just going to end up with more, it's going to end up with more fucking heartbreak and more fucking death and more like incarcerated people when we're, we're kind of decarcerating people slowly. Like it, it just, it's going to be a huge step back. Well, Biden did say nothing will fundamentally change. So. <laughs> but, um, yeah, any, we expect. any, any, uh, any closing thoughts on Manchurian candidate, um, I, I do I do have a closing thing here. So rewatching it before we went on air, you know, I don't think I have popped that hard for an ending in a long time. <laughs> I was like when when he just like drills the those shots into his stepdad and his mom, I was like, Yes, take him down. <laughs> no, it, it's 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 a very like cathartic ending because Lansbury plays the villain like to a hill. Like yeah. you just really grow to like hate her in this movie. I mean, just on a purely, uh, you know, entertainment level, it's a very well done film. Yeah, and you know, she she really she's a fucking like a nihilist before the like the Big Lebowski like we believe in the <laughs> Lebowski version right, of fucking right. nihilist. Like, oh, it's and and you know because like the thing is that the interesting thing I think is that you know her version of like her government wouldn't have ended up with communism. Like it would have ended up with totalitarian fascism. Like, right. It, it's she's doing anything she can to, to take over, to take power. Like she believes in absolutely nothing besides power. Her, her, uh, her husband, she's just playing with fucking alcohol. He's brainwashed in, in a different way. Like he's just like, he's, he's been fucking plied with alcohol to the point where his brain just like doesn't work. And he's like, you, you have like, to love how like, place. it's just, uh, it's clearly saying Joseph McCarthy is just a drunken buffoon. That is yeah. what the movie is yeah. saying. Yeah. But it's also not saying like, oh, well, it, it's saying that, you know, the Soviet Union and China are kind of buffoons too, or seem that way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they're being played Machiavellian style by Angela Lansbury. And throughout the movie, like, I think that, you know, I love the fucking, uh, the Chinese uh, scientists and like all of those characters, but like, they're not looked at in, it's not even like, they're, they're kind of buffoonish themselves. Like they're cracking jokes and like you know, or, or like overly serious. Like you don't get the feeling that like these are evil people that are going to be able to wrest power away from Angela Lansbury because in this movie she's completely fucking evil. Like there's nothing, there's no redeeming quality about her. That's what makes her a badass in this movie. Yeah, the other thing I was gonna say too. Uh... There's a oh, there's, lot there's of one. There's one thing I wanted to bring up yeah. um, really fast. I, I also I, I keep forgetting to bring this up, and I wanted to the whole time. I, I love that the the, uh, the institute that they work for is the Pavlov Institute. Right. That's the institute that conditions their brain. I don't know. I just thought that, that was a great. That was a great. It's uh, a great touch for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, for me, it's um. I think Lansbury is very good in it, but I also there's a lot of familiar faces in this film. If you're like really deep into cinema you know I, when yeah. i was 
watching it, I was like, you know, I stopped at one point. There's a Russian agent in it named Dimitri. I'm like, wait, that's that's Reggie Nowder. That's the guy from Salem's Lot. That's the vampire from Salem's Lot. And uh, Henry Silva as uh, the sort of buffoonish, uh, what is it? He's the cook for Lawrence Harvey. He's playing an Asian guy, but he's, you know, the whitest thing since white bread. I mean, everyone's <laughs> sort of is given their time to shine in this, even if it's only yeah. for like a cameo. And there's a lot of really good and talented actors and actresses in it. Yeah. And I mean, Janet Lee is always very easy on my eyes. So, yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, one of the one of the cool things about like older Hollywood is that there was just like a, a stable of, um, of of character actors. and. Yeah that were very, very good, that spent decades, they'd kind of uh, enter in these contracts with different studios, yeah. just be in, like, all these different assorted movies and be in pretty much every other, like, every other movie. Like, in noir movies, there's that one, um, that guy, Elijah, um, he's not in this, but there's, this, like, I, like, if you watch, like, a bunch of noir movies from, like, the... the Elijah movie, Cook? Movie, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you watch a bunch of, like, noir movies from the 40s and 50s, the same actors pop up over and over again. Yeah, and I feel like this is kind of the, like the dawn of New Hollywood. Like yeah. you're, you're watching, like it's the same kind of thing. Um, People were getting jobs back then; they yeah. were getting jobs like crazy. It's also funny that it's it's also interesting that somehow it's like the one movie that's not a, a Frank Sinatra vehicle that he was in. Like, <laughs> Where like he's singing every every scene. Yeah, like no, like it seems like a lot of the movies that Frank Sinatra was in were, were obviously scripted for him. Yeah. And this, in this case, they like gave him the turn to be a hero, but like none of that dialogue is remotely written for him. Yeah, I mean, you I, can hear him saying "kid" or whatever, but like that's you know, that's just part of other, his New Jersey upbringing. The other thing that works about the film for me is, uh, I mean, if you go, if you were to go into it blind, I think you you wouldn't know who's on whose side. I mean, even the the Janet Lee character, her and her interactions. Yeah, with, I thought she was going to end up being like the American operator. The yeah, I thought she, yeah, yeah, because like the way she interacts with uh, Marco, the Frank Sinatra character, you're like, oh, what's her motivations? Like what? She just yeah. left her fiance? What? What is this woman doing? Like, And and it's a movie that's drenched in paranoia, obviously, which I love. I love when movies are drenched in paranoia, personally. Mm -hmm. But like, mm -hmm. it's funny when it's funny when like you really realize that somebody is just like a one a one dimensional character meant to like move the plot along. Like, they, there's no other redeeming like or whatever like factor to their dialogue, and you're like, I don't trust that person. And it's like, no, wait, that's a plot device. <laughs> in terms of uh, paranoid thrillers and just movies that are drenched in paranoia, where would you rank the Manchurian Candidate? Because for me, like. I think it's my bias That's towards films question. made after 67, but I, I sort of prefer stuff like um, John Carpenter's The Thing. I think that's an extremely paranoid movie. Like I said, The Parallax View is the, the top one for me. Maybe uh, Coppola's The Conversation, but I, I think The Manchurian Candidate has that, but I'm put off by how much it's drenched in this sort of... Uh, Oh, the commies are coming paranoia. Before I give my yeah. rating, uh, also include David Cronenberg's The Fly. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. That movie. I, I mean, I saw that movie like three years ago. And I kid you not, guys, I had nightmares for like <laughs> – I was sleeping with a nightlight on, with the, with the light on for mm -hmm. months because I would see that movie and I'm just like, oh, God. Well, the, the ultimate – the it, it would freak me out. The and ultimate I, I paranoid Cronenberg for me is Videodrome. And it, you I've know never, that is Cold Warish in its own way, but you know I I, I don't know I, I think this is a paranoid movie, 
but it's paranoid in this way where I'm like, oh God, it, it's like, it's not exactly like one of those, you know, uh, John Wayne movies, like mm -hmm. Big Jim McLean, where it's like, oh, the commies are infiltrating. It's sort of kind of more liberal than that and that it's saying, oh, really the commies aren't the, the real threat. It's this, you know, uh, nation fascist woman in Angela Lansbury. But I, I still feel like I'm put off by some of the Cold War politics and whatnot. Mm -hmm. It kind of feels like it's at a crossroads for me. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that I think there's a I think there's a perfect kind of synthesis where we're talking about all these movies that are like anti-government, like oh the real like be paranoid about your own government, and then like on one side, and then on the other one it's like be paranoid about the Russians. This somehow perfectly meets yep. in that middle ground where it's like both your government and the Russians and the Chinese and you know some lady that's on a train and like you, you like. Who do you know? Like, how do you know who to trust? And even the people that have good motivations, like they're fucking brainwashed. So it's like, who, <laughs> how do you know? How do you know who to trust whatsoever? And I really, I like the Raymond Shaw character a lot um, because he's just not, it's not like, it's not like you're rooting for him in the sense of like, you're rooting for him to like overcome his mother and his stepfather, but he's not like a likable character. You're not like, oh, this is like a, this is like a nice guy. Like, I feel like this guy is charismatic and I'm like, and somehow like, he's just like this, this, this thing that's been like transformed by having this relationship with his mother, like almost in like a Norman Bates kind of way. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Oedipal complex thing is very much yeah. like up front in this movie. I'm not sure it's even subtext. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's, I, I think that, but I also think that throughout history, there's been a lot of these stories of like the powerful, I mean, besides like Oedipus, like, like the, the, the evil, like totalitarian mother. And then just like the, you know, the um, almost like, I guess the, like literally, literally in the book actually, but like the impotent, like father person, like by mm -hmm. the side, literally in the book, he is impotent. Like uh, in the, in the Manchurian Candidate book, he can't have sex with her because she's like so dominated him that his like dick no longer works. So it's like this, impotent, <laughs> literally that's a detail that they go into at one point in the Manchurian Candidate like novel. <laughs> What do you guys think um, about the film in terms of? Do you guys are you, are you guys fans of uh, uh, Joan Frankenheimer more generally? Because I think he's one of the more people don't talk about him as like one of these Hollywood directors on the same level as like a Spielberg. But right. I mean, he has some real gems. I mean, um, I mean, I I won't say that this is a gem, but he did Island of Doctor Moreau, which was terrible. But uh, <laughs> he, he's done a lot of you know really great movies, and I'm trying to think of them off the top of my head but oh he did birdman of alcatraz and uh I would, yeah, yeah i would i would have to kind of dig deep into his catalog to um just check out a bunch of his movies to see which ones i would i would like and ones that would be like eh, that was okay one that i um, haven't watched that i want to watch um and do a stream on it would be interesting at some point to do the george wallace uh oh yeah um, two -part. taxi driver is that one it no, I'm talking about uh, John Frankenheimer has a George, like George Wallace, like that's his, uh, th that's the name of it. It's based on like, oh. the Southern governor that was like the racist. racist right, 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 right. Well, yeah. where I was going was, um, uh, you know, with the whole Arthur Bremer thing leading, uh, influenced by John Hinckley, had, well, I was influenced by Robert De Niro's Taxi Driver. So that's where I was going. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that was about, uh, Frankenheimer has a movie that's just called, or like a TV, a TV, like two part movie that's just called George Wallace. And I'd be very interested mm. to watch that. He, he also yeah. did a, he did a TV movie called the path to war, which is a, it's like an anti-Iraq war film. 
So, I mean, he's done some interesting things. French Connection 2, which, I, I mean, it's not the French Connection, but it's good in its own right as a standalone. Um, also, he did an Israeli propaganda film called Black Sunday, which is really weird because he said, yeah, I, I tweaked a few things because I didn't want it to be purely an Israeli propaganda film. Mm -hmm. I wanted the Arabs to not look as bad. And but didn't he's want it a out very odd director. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he, like, um, he filmed... Um, Bobby Kennedy, when he was running for president in 68, when he was on the road, he would like film um, like different shots of him, like greeting people, shaking hands. You can find this stuff. Um, he, I think I was actually looking him up uh, before uh, JG came on during the break. And uh, I think he died in, in 2007. Because yeah, he's not alive anymore, obviously. This is 2002. 2002. Okay, I was yeah. off by. Right, so right, yeah. Um, I, I, I. There's a couple of movies in here that I want to rewatch, like Birdman of Spe Speaking like of that. of which, he sort of did a film that may be of interest to leftists just because of the content. It's a uh, 1991's Year of the Gun with uh, oh. the beautiful Sharon Stone. I'm a huge Sharon Stone fan, uh, and I'm I'm proud to admit that. I don't care. But hey, uh, no problem with that. I I can't. I can't see her without thinking about Casino. Like, oh, it's uh, Casino is great, especially yeah. the TV edited version where it's like they have to censor other work. That's the first. Uh, that's the first movie I did with Ben. Like the mm -hmm. first movie stream I did with Ben on on GTA. Um, uh, like I don't think I think back in uh, December because um, he had done Goodfellas with Mike Racine. Like they had talked about it, so we were like, we can't start with that. Like our, our movie stream started as like a Scorsese watch through, and then it just kind of transformed into it like kind of evolved so, yeah there's multi-headed hydra <laughs> the reason i mentioned uh this sharon stone movie that he did year of the gun it deals with the um the kidnapping and assassination of Aldo Moro. you know it, it deals with the red brigades and all that stuff so he's done a lot of um oddly political films so mm -hmm. so um jg this is a sort of thing that i do since you're a big film book uh i'm curious to know what's your take on kevin smith um, uh, he of course has got the smile. He knows where I'm going. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I, I I'm honestly not the biggest Kevin Smith fan. I never got into Clerks. I get why it appeals to people. I but really, I really, never mind. I really, I think both of us really, really love Clerks. Mm -hmm. it, just, it reminds mm -hmm. me of it reminds me of the town that I fucking grew up in, and it like, I mean, like, or the town that I live in, like New Paltz, kind of has a lot of fucking. Like weird fucking Jay and Silent Bob type people. That, that <laughs> I know, yeah. right? There's nothing to fucking so, do. So that like, movie really, I don't know. I just, I, mean, I, was, I love it to death. Um, I liked what he did with um, the horror movies he's done lately, oh, like um, Tusk and uh, yeah, Tusk and uh, Red State and uh, Red State is really good. Red yeah, State I actually surprised it. me. Um, he did uh, Yoga Hosers, which is a sequel to Tusk. I, yeah, I like – you know, it's funny. Everyone I know hates Yoga Hosers, but I, I enjoyed I, Yoga I, Hosers. I, liked, I yeah, thought it was like an I old – it reminded me of like those old Full Moon Studios type, you know, low-budget trash movies like the Puppet Master series. <laughs> right, like and I was those like, low-budget indie movies. Like, Red um, State not, – not to interrupt you, but Red no, State okay. surprised me because I, I thought it was going to be – because I, I had a friend who was like real pure mainstream Democrat uh, mm -hmm. that loved Kevin Smith. And he was like all pumped for uh, Red State. And I was like, oh, God, is this going to be like a really preachy film? And I guess it is in some ways. But he also 
it's interesting. I mean, it plays a lot off of stuff like Waco, mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily take the view that the federal government has the right approach to those things. Mm -hmm. It's sort of critical of the federal government in that way. And I actually like that he took that sort of viewpoint um, because it wasn't it wasn't as black and white of a movie as I thought it was going to be. Mm. Um, well, yeah, back to Yoga Hosers. Um, yeah, I don't understand why people hate that movie. I, it's, you know, I watched it several times on YouTube for free, and I, I got to say I love it. Um, it's probably one of my, my favorite films of his outside of, of um, the Views universe, uh, next to Jersey Girl. Um, yeah. I, liked, I, I, think, I think Tusk is fucking great. No, yeah, Tusk is, yeah, yeah, it is, but I kind of maybe, maybe not like it, it gave me like this feeling of just like persistent nausea, and that's how I know that it was like a good, like a good, I don't know, like gross out fucking like like Film. that genre of horror. Yeah. Well, I, I I like that he's like he's like Tarantino in a lot of ways because he'll yeah. bring back these actors that everyone forgot about. It's like Michael Parks is really good in Tusk and he's also really good in Red State. I mean, you really hate him in Red State. He's such a bigoted, <laughs> you know, he's basically David Koresh in that movie, right? But, yeah. you know, that's the thing I like about Kevin Smith. He'll sort of bring in these actors that I grew up on, character actors that I would, you know, I would go to my video store. It was a video store that specialized in like genre films that were really obscure and whatnot so those are the like kind of actors i like seeing and he's sort of like he's a career revival guy he, he tries yeah. to you know give an older guy uh or older actors and actresses uh you know That's something nice. to do yeah. yeah well it's that same it's the same genre of uh or that same i guess style of as tarantino of like uh like a filmmaker filmmakers who clearly have watched way too much cinema yeah like, yeah. like filmmakers who like pop culture references is their uh like is a big part of their aesthetic so it's yeah. like you know i mean with, with kevin smith it's obviously more comic books a lot of times but they're yeah, also definitely. like action films older films so it's like that that's interesting i, I it, get, it gets really weird when you reach that level of cinephilia where yeah. you're like you're watching like like i watch john carpenter movies sometimes because i'm a huge john carpenter buff and yeah. i'll be like oh he's referencing this old howard hawks movie and i would just think to myself Damn, I am such a nerd. How do I know that? <laughs> but uh, the other that, thing about Kevin Smith, I was going to say is, uh, I don't know. I find some of his takes like kind of off base, but you know, uh, he makes good films. It's just not necessarily always my style of film, right? Like I think like, his take on Tim Burton's Batman sucked, though. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys remember that where he was yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't well, know. He, uh, um, there's an unreleased. Sorry to interrupt you, JG, but. Um, there's an unreleased script for Super. There was going to be a Superman movie that Kevin Smith had written that Tim Burton was going to direct, and it oh, never really? got made. And yeah, there's a um, uh, a documentary uh, called "The Death of Superman Lives: What Happened," um, basically chronicling the early parts of the movie and how it all fell apart. I've seen it like several times. It's really good. That was like, the one they were going to do with Nicolas Cage, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen the documentary. Um, it is really good. I, I forget what what he said about the Tim Burton Batman. I think Tim Burton said something about Planet of the Apes and how he would never read comic books, yeah, uh, especially ones it. written by Kevin Smith. And then I think yeah, Kevin wrote, Smith said, "Well, that explains Batman. You've never yeah. read comics." I'm like, "No, you don't like, touch Tim Burton's Batman." <laughs> well, yeah, I'm actually a big Tim Burton fan myself as well, yeah. so I respect both those guys. I it's think just um, 
I can't ahead, find please. the article on it, but I think uh, Kevin Smith at one point was going to revive um, Preacher before uh, before the AMC show. Yeah, he was like slated to like re- help write and direct that. You and- should actually, real quickly, Force, you should uh, YouTube uh, Kevin Smith and Tim Burton because it's a funny clip that he does. He, he speaks at universities and he's like, um, he's talking to uh, an executive on on uh, on the phone and he's like, "I'm contemplating legal action." I, he's like joking around and he's like going, you know, and then like the next day, the next day um, he gets a, a, a response from Tim Burton's publicist, which I kid you not, this is his name, Bumble Ward. There is somebody on this planet named fucking Bumble Ward. And it's like the gloves are off and I will never read a comic book by Kevin. Here it is. Enjoy Batman just since the same people were. Did I enjoy Batman? Yeah, I enjoyed Batman. I mean, with all its flaws and shit. Yeah, absolutely. When the movie came out, like, I was, I had no idea I ever wanted to be in film. I was just a guy that watched movies and shit. And that summer was huge. You couldn't turn around without seeing the bat signal somewhere. People were cutting into their fucking heads. It was just like it was a summer of Batman. If you were a comic book fan, it was pretty hot. And I was real deep into it at that point. I had just gotten back into comics. So suddenly, Batman was everywhere, so I was a big fan. But Tim Burton, I, I guess, like, you know, ever since the Superman incident, people will bring me copies of the script. Like, they buy at comic book conventions or buy off the Internet, and they hand it to me, and like, would you autograph? I say, all right. And I always write, fuck Tim Burton. Because <laughs> I figure he'll never see it. But I guess Tim Burton finally saw one. <laughs> because during the summer, uh, right before Jay and Bob came out and after Planet of the Apes, Planet of the Apes came out, there was a piece that ran in the New York Post on page six in which Tim Burton chewed me a new asshole. At the end of Planet of the Apes movie, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, like Marky Mark goes back to fucking present day. <laughs> it is fucking Marky Mark. I don't care what he calls himself now. It's just like, feel it, feel it, you know? It's funny that he he speaks in the same way that he writes monologues, like when uh when Ben Affleck gave gave those uh, monologues and fucking chasing Amy, pretty much like he, yeah he had the same cadence that Kevin Smith has normally. I I he's very interesting in that he um Dang. he sort of takes his show on the road and whatnot. I know Crispin Glover does that too, and he's very fan interactive, and you know I I think he was joking. Uh, about his little feud with Tim Burton, but it, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, he, he's good at like drumming up attention by, you know, making witty remarks and whatnot. And I, I think he should be respected for that. Yeah. I mean, he's very, he's very, he's, I hate to say respect the hustle, but he does have a pretty good hustle. <laughs> he does. Not that I'm a fan of hustle culture. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, he got, uh, he got inspired by um, Slacker. That was, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so when he watched, we're like, gonna watch that movie. Yeah, a couple of years before, um, I was just when I was in Austin like a couple of weeks ago. I, I went there for a vacation, and they had the the dude from Slacker as like the on like a, a mural. That was the first thing I saw. But um, like so yeah, so he got inspired by that and like a indie cinema place that he went to, and that's kind of his original concept. Like um, he was um inspired by Spike Lee, How Hartley, Jim Jarmusch, and Richard Linklater. Yeah, but like I, his, his exact idea, yeah. I guess his exact idea for Clerks was based on Slacker after seeing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, Speaking of Linklater, at some point we're going to have to do a show on uh, a Scanner Darkly. 
That is a, a really weird paranoia. I did one. Yeah. Uh, I did one with uh, Ben and uh, Jeremy Johnson. I mean, I'd be down to watch it again. But like, yeah, a couple months ago, there's a stream that we did with uh, Jeremy Johnson, mm-hmm. um, who like I don't know. I guess he he like he's really into Philip K. Dick or whatever. And like we so we watched that and uh, and like talked about it for like two and a half hours, and it was like a good it was a good stream. But I had to keep holding back from like making like i don't know i was like all right don't make any like don't make any fucking like drug jokes or whatever like <laughs> and then i just I, like ended up slipping up and like like making like you, a, like you made a joke about like about like eating an edible i was like talking about an edible or something and then i was like ah oh, fuck <laughs> um i guess the top i mean link later movie for me next to the before to the before trilogy which is really good i have to say i mean i like i like boyhood Hands down, one of my favorite movies of his. I, I bought it like uh, like two years ago, and I, I watched it in one sitting. And I was just like, "Damn, this is a real good movie." And I hadn't really been like familiar with Linklater until I I got further into Kevin Smith. Um, but yeah, boy, we have to do Boyhood, even if you've already seen it more than once. Like I, uh, I, I still good. I still I still love fucking Days and Confused. Like I yeah, I, hell yeah. I'll never not like that movie. It's like all right, all right, all right. Yeah, it's it's literally, <laughs> but it's literally like he kind of gives you like a feeling. He like gives you kind of mm-hmm. like a feeling for like like a nostalgic feeling for like an hour and a half, and it's like I don't know, like it's almost like the the plot of it almost doesn't matter because there's just so much going on at the same time. <laughs> That's a movie that has fucking so many like actors that end up being big too, and like, yeah, definitely. Time. There's yeah. um. I should have brought it out, but there's a, I have a book in my personal library about the making of Dazed and Confused. Um, oh, really? also, yeah, yeah, I forget the author's name. Uh, uh, it's like a interview book, and it came out like maybe a year ago during the pandemic. You have to wonder kind of if, uh, like, if the reason that Kevin Smith reached out to fucking Ben Affleck for so many of those movies um was was dazed and confused yeah uh, as like the Good world's point. biggest fucking richard linkletter fan i feel like do you, do you guys think we have equivalents uh to those kind of filmmakers today like we've talked about kevin smith and we've talked about david cronenberg and frankenheimer well i mean i i think there's a few guys that really impress me ty west i'm a big yeah. fan of but I, I don't think we have the same type of filmmakers anymore I think they get no, I don't up. think so either. It's you know, it's really hard to pin. That's a good question, but it's really hard to pinpoint because um, everything is just through a studio now. It's not really do. I mean, there still is you know, do-it-yourself uh, movie makers like Kevin Smith, but um, it's all cooperated now. So yeah, they get, my, they get snatched up by streaming services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they write, um, like, and they write like TV shows rather than movies. And they kind yeah, of, I mean, the, I mean the, that that's the thing that like I'm not even necessarily saying that they have to be like indie filmmakers, but like filmmakers with like maybe their own sense of vision or they they're they're sort of thinking about what do I want to convey in this film because I don't I don't know I I, I feel like a lot of Hollywood films Elaine Jones writes Jones at uh, Jackman writes about this a lot. A lot of them feel like kind of empty or, you know, yeah. not, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too nostalgic for older movies. <laughs> I also well, feel like there was a, there's like a kind of a, a counter reaction to the fact that like it hit that moment with fucking like Mumblecore where mm-hmm. right. like indie movies were just having such a big moment and like there were just and so many like, weird ones. And then all of a sudden it feels like people kind of backed mm-hmm. away from it because like 
how many of those movies can we really watch? And yeah. now, now the other thing is that the moment I, of like extreme consolidation uh, with like streaming services. And right. I mean, sucks, but like, the changing dynamics, obviously, in technology yeah. with with streaming services have um, have rendered some so-called indie filmmakers irrelevant as opposed yeah. to ones, you know, in, 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 in the eighties and nineties, since we're always like pinpointing that decade as like, like, of course, like, like, opening my mic, um, like in the, in the, in the fifties and like in, in the in the seventies with the new Hollywood and, um, you know, you, in the eighties, you had like the artsy kind of, uh, films and in, in the nineties, of course, the indie, uh, cred and, and the two thousands, uh, it's kind of when it started getting a little corporated, uh, corporated. Yeah. I mean, I think now you have like, I, you know, the paralyzing, like, I think directors are fucking scared to do anything that isn't woke. Like, yeah. I think, so I think we're at a very weird moment right now. And I think at some point it's all going to bounce back. Well, um, now, now what, what, what gets me now is like, there's a Dallas based company called Sinistate, which mm -hmm. they, they own like publications, uh, like Fangoria and they also make their own movies. But they're trying to do like the right wing equivalent, yeah, of like woke cinema. So it's like anti woke. Yeah, and, and that ruins creativity because at that point yeah. they're just being because like if you look at truly subversive anti PC like uh, cinema or comic books or anything like Garth Ennis and stuff like there's no like like it's satire and you're not you don't think he's necessarily reacting to like I mean obviously like he's not reacting to like the Me Too movement you know what I mean he's not like oh like let's let's Oh, people are so woke nowadays. Like it's just satirical, fucking grotesque madness, and none of these fucking right. people are are capable of thinking that like that way. You what's what's these... what's funny to me too? Not not to interrupt was um, I feel like everyone talks like you hear Republicans talk about oh Hollywood, they're so left wing and whatnot, and I'm <laughs> like I don't know Lexi Alexander, who I mean I've seen people criticize her as too woke, but I, I she's pretty you know, far to the left compared to most Hollywood people uh, these days. She did a Punisher War Zone. She's a Palestinian activist and all this mm -hmm. other stuff, but she can't get a film made in Hollywood. <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure it may have to do with like her politics being sort of uh, more left of, more to the left of the spectrum than what is acceptable in Hollywood. Probably I think also Hollywood's kind of conservative in some ways. Yeah, the Palestinian activist part of it probably. Yeah. Just think that you should get her on the show at some point. <laughs> I, I I want this I want this show to, to, to blow up. Like I, I want to yeah. be able to like I feel like I feel like very slowly we're gonna get to that point, but like I don't know, like I'm I need to get better at like reaching out to to like guests that are big and you know what I mean? Like being like, let's like why not? Like let's let's reach for the stars here. Yeah. And I'll help. You know, I will. Yeah. <laughs> like, um what was I gonna say? Um shoot, it just it's my brain. We should, probably, we should probably wrap this, the, the yeah. thing out because we did an hour first and now this is going to be another three hour. Uh, this three hour I'm sorry if I ranted too much. No, 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 this, was, this was fun. I feel like I can do this awesome. three hours. So, oh, so, since we talked about Reagan, if anyone yeah. is still listening at this point so far into the show, read the book Dark Victory. That is the best book on Reagan. Dan Muldea's Dark Victory because it details how he was like all mobbed up uh, and how he was sort of a creation of Hollywood and the mob, but it's fascinating book. So that's not that's not surprising. All right, um, yeah. quickly, everybody. So each, each person, I guess, uh, 
what did you think of Manchurian Candidate just on a good and or bad kind of scale? I guess I'll go first, um, since I'm the young one. Uh, <laughs> I say probably about like an eight and a half out of 10. I don't do... Well, I'm not. I'm not saying you have to rate it. I'm just saying. Okay. Like, okay. I, I was gonna say. I don't. I don't do like the five like stars. A final, and, a fi yeah. I, I, I'm yeah. Not I think it's an extremely well crafted film. I think John Frankenheimer is one of the more underrated 20th century d directors of the Hollywood mold. And I think, you know, if you haven't seen it, there's a reason it's so highly regarded. I may not connect to it as much with regards to some of the Cold War politics, but it's an expertly made film with an astounding cast, including the supporting actors. And I, I think, you know, but I, for me, the big thing about the film is at about the hour mark, I think you start to feel this shift where it's like, oh, wait, maybe this is being more critical of McCarthyism than I realized. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that twist halfway in really brought me into the film more than the first hour. And I was like, I started to get really into it after the hour mark. You and I think it's realize, a really great film. You start to realize at that point, I think that it's not like a black and white, like the moral is not going to be black and white. Like it's going to be far more twisted. And like, I, I, I don't know. Like I didn't, I couldn't guess who the fucking, uh, who his American operator was going to be like the first time I saw it. Like I, I thought like it was, maybe they were just going to throw in like another character or something like finding out that it was the mom and it wasn't that the mom was like, you know, twisting him. It was that literally the mom was twisting him like, wiped his brain was kind of like uh you have to love the way they reveal it too right like like he's just on the phone he's like it's the american operator frank sinatra and frank sinatra it's like i wonder who it is and he's just like okay mother it's like frank sinatra oh yeah his face goes <laughs> i don't know i i res i respect the fuck out of the fact that it wasn't just a sinatra vehicle like i you know what i yeah. mean like i respect that they like used him as an actual like he's, he's a, as he's an a actual actor yeah, and they allowed him to get overshadowed by Angela Lansbury. Like they allowed his character to kind of just fade into the background. Like everybody Again, likes everybody likes movie. Frank Sinatra. Like I'm, I mean, on like a charisma level. But then, like you know, like I, I feel like he's the character that most, and the character probably that is in it less than Frank Sinatra is Angela Lansbury. Mm -hmm. And she just, just like decimates, uh, decimates everybody else. Since I didn't, since we didn't talk about it um, before I came on, and I don't think we mentioned it really here. What did you guys think of Lawrence Harvey as the, you know, tormented main character? I mean, so I, I think that I, his accent kind of took me out of it at times, but I think he's, he's kind of like, like, cause I was reading, I was listening to the audiobook of it and he's like, just this awkward, he's like this awkward, unlikable cloying figure. And as far as that goes, I think he did a great job of that. Um, I, I think that, I don't know. I, I can't see anybody else really doing. And then kind of the fact that he had that accent made it even more like made it even more stark that like everyone else is kind of just talking normally. And he's like, well, I don't. But like, he has that like fucking weird voice, like especially when he gets like the brainwashing thing. Like he, it almost sounds like he's part of like a machine or something like mm -hmm. he's like, he's like, yes, like <laughs> he sounds a little like blurch from the end. Yeah, I, I asked because uh <laughs> People should look up his filmography. He's very interesting. He's sort of like a John Cassavetes character because he would do acting and then he was also a director. So mm -hmm. very interesting guy on his own. But I thought he was good in it too. And I, yeah. I thought it was a great film overall. All right. Well, All right. Uh, we're going to cut it here. Um, this right. is going to be going up on Tuesday. Um, 
I should really plug it. anything. I'm have it. Oh, I need to plug that we have a Patreon now. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that um, this is going to go up on Tuesday. I think I'm going to put it up a little bit earlier for, uh, for if, if people join the Patreon. I don't know if anyone has yet because I just made it today. But um, so, yeah. So uh, if you want to become a patron, it's um, patreon.com slash movie night extra. And uh, yeah, I don't know. We, yeah, haven't we, don't. Gotten, we haven't gotten any 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 patrons yet, but that's okay. We're um, just starting, so we got yeah. time. Um, I'm really, I'm really hoping to um, at least make enough uh, money on Patreon that we can start kind of using it as a um, that we can start using it as a as a movie fund at the very least. Like, yeah, so we wouldn't have to pay get, out of our own pockets. Yeah, it's going to get expensive. So if you like this, uh, if you like the show, and if you if you want us to keep watching movies and not go broke, um, become a patron. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and let me consume content. <laughs> give give whatever you can. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a, you five dollars, one dollars, ten dollars. Uh, at some at some point, um, I'm going to be doing like short form video essays. I think if people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, if I can kind of make somewhat of a living on on doing some of this stuff. So I think that there'll be a lot of content for people, and I think that at some points we'll also do um, at some points we'll probably also do bonus episodes and stuff. So you know, we're just getting started, and and hopefully we get enough seed money to continue. But all right, I'm gonna leave it at that. All right. um, thank you for 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 coming on, JG. Uh, thank you. So nice to meet you, man. Appreciate it, and hope everyone can uh, help you out on Patreon. And if they can help me out on Patreon, or if they can listen to Parallax views, please oh, do yeah. so. Yeah.